This is episode 16, Licence to Kill. A vengeful James Bond goes rogue to infiltrate and take down the organisation of a drug lord who has murdered his friend's new wife and left him near death. That is the film in a nutshell. Jay, what do you remember about this before we rewatched it recently? I remember quite a bit about this one, Andy, and I don't know it's because it's a more modern film, you know, in the 80s, back in the 80s. So... I do feel my memory was was quite good with this one. So I remember that Felix's wife was murdered. Also remembered that Felix had his leg bitten off by a shark. But we also touched on that, didn't we? Um, Felix having his leg bitten off in a previous episode when we talked about the difference between the book and the novel. So I don't, can't remember if that prompted me to think of that, you know, when we talked about it in the podcast episode or I generally remembered it from this film. Also remember Del Toro being a henchman as well, and obviously Bond going rogue in Licence to Kill. And I, I remembered, and I don't know if this is something that's very common in America, but I remembered that religious man in terms of, you know, the TV, not adverts, but TV programmes, and he was a front man on the TV. So I can't remember his name, but I remember that there was a bloke in a white suit or blazer that was kind of like, um, I know he wasn't important, but I know he was the, I would say a front man is probably the right word in terms of what he was doing. And also remembered Robert Davy as well, being the main villain, um, obviously Sanchez. I can't remember that his name was Sanchez in the film, but I remembered um, who the actor was because obviously he's in other films as well. So, uh, yeah, I think my memory is quite good with this. More about, what about you, Andy? Yeah, that's a lot of detail there. For me, not so much. I, I remember very little about the story or any characters or anything. There's there's one thing that comes to mind, and that was a, a, quite a vague memory at, at best, and it was a bar fight. And, you know, the usual kind of things happening in a bar fight. Everyone's having a scrap and furniture's being used. But I just remember, like a... A sword, a swordfish, but like a you know a model of a swordfish being taken off the wall and being used as a weapon. And I just thought that was a really weird thing, and that that just came to to mind for this film, but nothing else otherwise. So this, I was going into this with a relatively clean slate, which I suppose sometimes is um a good thing. Yeah, no preconceived notions. So uh, it was like a brand new film, even though as things went along, it sort of triggered a few more memories along the way, but. In terms of beforehand, not so much. Okay, let's uh, get some of the main information down on the film. So we've got four main villains in this. We have Franz Sanchez, we have Dario, Milton Crest, and Colonel Heller. And just the two Bond girls this time, Pam Bouvier and Lupe Lamora. And the theme song is sung by Gladys Knight, and it's Licensed to Kill. So the opening credits, we've we've kind of covered... You know, I've said before, Andy, the, the opening credits, they a lot of them are quite consistent. So, But I like this one, Andy, because the camera lens, so it starts with the camera lens and the, the wedding clips being played, and that's obviously linked in a minute. We can talk about that. Then you've just got your usual silhouettes of models, dancing models, and then you've got your gun targets, which is obviously linked to the license to kill bit. You've got the casino tables and chips. And then also... 
the photo reel and lots of different dance move dance moves. And I mentioned the different dance moves, Andy, because I haven't, I haven't wrote this down. It's just um, I just remembered this. When we were watching them, my wife would then just calling out different dance moves because our daughter does ballet and freestyle. So, she was, so the missus was going, oh, that's this move. Oh, that's this move. That's this move. So, yeah, there's something there that um, she's picked up. And also, we've had this consistent now for um, at least two other Bond movies, the Neon 007 writing two in the opening credits. So that's the opening credits. So the body count. So this is James Bond kills only, and we've had a respectable 10. I suppose from the title of the film, maybe you would have expected a bit more. Yeah, it's not licensed to kill a lot, is it? It's licensed to kill a reasonable number of people, to give it its full title. Uh, we have a few gadgets. We have the Dentonite toothpaste. We have a signature camera gun and a laser Polaroid camera. So a few things for Bond to play with there. The introduction of Bond, James Bond, takes place quite late into the film, actually. One hour, eight minutes, 49 seconds. So getting on for halfway through, or maybe a little bit more. Uh, we do have a martini, and Bond puts extra emphasis on the shaken part this time, which I thought was quite interesting. We have no hat wearing and no hat throwing this time around, though. So, first question for you, Jay, or even second question for you. Uh, what was your favourite scene? My favourite scene, and it's quite a long one, is when Bond infiltrates Cress's yacht and then he kills the bloke who killed Sharky, and then Bond dives into the water. He destroys some drugs that's on a—I uh, don't—I don't think you call it a submarine, but an underwater vehicle. And then he—he gets—he shoots the harpoon on the the seaplane or um, boat plane. I think we've referenced it before, and then takes the money. So I like that whole ten minutes, maybe. So I enjoyed that as well, and I think. I just liked it because usually Bond isn't like that in terms of stealing the money and everything. But obviously, you know, because he's gone, he's gone rogue. He needs to kind of fund certain things now because he he hasn't got the MI6 behind him. So that that, that was probably my favourite scene. What about you? Yeah, that was a good scene, and I, I think I've used the word vengeful at the opening of the pod, and this is a perfect example of that for me. Though, in in some ways, it's kind of similar to what I said last week and that there was a really good closing and a really good opening but I've plumped for the opening scene again the uh, the helicopter and plane chase the capture of Sanchez and then the parachuting into the wedding I think that whole setup for what the film was going to be about I think was another really really strong opening so I've gone for, for the opening scene again you do you do like a strong opening don't you Andy because you, you've picked um, a few opening scenes in terms of your favourite scenes I think it's it's my mindset, and I do the same thing with TV series as well. Like if if a if a series doesn't start well, I don't continue with it. So I I have high expectations at the start, and I guess that, that um, kind of overflows into my film love as well. That it's got to start strong, otherwise I lose interest. And I suppose from memory, you know, doing the rewatching these films, and you know, we're on episode sixteen now. They they can't be they can't have been many. I'm trying to think of any kind of weak openings that we've had so far. Or I don't really recall discussing any weak openings. So there might be some films where we've not picked as a, a favourite, but there's nothing that really jumps out to think, oh, that is a a weak one. There was the Bond film, the Connery film, where he had the 
the the snorkel with the dock on top and he ends up blowing um the factory up do you remember that one i can't remember which film uh, it was i believe that, that was thunderbolt oh okay. great memory if not feel free to edit that. Yeah. <laughs> the correct answer in there but yeah, so I think that was one of the the quieter um, beginning bits. But yeah, you've picked out, you know, from from memory, you know, the the jaws opening with the parachute, you know, lack of parachute and jaws coming down and landing on the the um, the circus big. What is it? What do you call it? The big top. Yeah, I recall you picking that as one of the favourite scenes as well. Yeah, it was certainly certainly a great scene. I, I think not a weak opening. I think the only one that comes to mind that is that we may be called out as being not relevant to the film was the Roger Moore film, which escapes me which one it is, but it's where he kills Blofeld, um, flying the helicopter and like dumps him in the chimney or whatever it is. Because there's no mention of Blofeld anywhere else in the film. It's just a kind of a opening scene, kills him, and then on we go with the rest. But it's still a decent scene. It wasn't weak. It was just somewhat irrelevant. Yeah, and there has been the odd opening scene that has been a, a cold opening where it doesn't have any relevance to the actual film. So it's kind of like a separate mission, isn't it? But this one, obviously, you know, you picked out straight away the, the Sanchez capture, the parachute into the wedding, and then that basically is the film, isn't it, then? The main film. Yeah, we're up and running at this point. So another question for you, Jay, that we're tracking every week. How many times did you reach for your phone? Zero, and I wasn't tempted from memory either. So that's uh, back-to-back zeros, I think, from me for Timothy Dalton. How about you, Andy? Same, zero. This was, uh, we'll we'll get on to ratings very shortly, but I was really into this, so I had no temptation to distract myself with my phone or any other device. So let's talk about the all-important rating. Jay, what did you give this out of 10? I really enjoyed this, and I was surprised that I enjoyed this. So I gave it a respectable 7 out of 10. So I went into this film, and I think I said it last week as well, not really looking forward to watching the Timothy Dalton films. From memory, they were the weakest, having, you know, having not watched them for a good 10 years. So I wasn't really looking forward to these. And obviously last week's episode, we we scored it quite low, didn't we? The Living Daylights. But Licence to Kill was surprisingly good after last week's outing. And I haven't wrote this down, Andy, but 7 out of 10, very respectable. But also, Andy, I think this is probably the most realistic Bond we've had so far. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I tend to agree. The word gritty comes to mind. It's very. We'll we'll obviously talk a, bit, a little bit more about the darker elements and, and what we think as we go along. But it almost felt like it wasn't a Bond film in some ways, in that they went away from the usual, like you said, the megalomaniac, the elaborate plans and seemingly unrealistic goals and aspirations of the main villain, and. It was just a down and dirty film about revenge and justice, which um, was quite an interesting take, I thought. Yeah, and I think that's why I gave it 7 out of 10. So I think it is a good film. I think Dalton was good in it. But I like the story. You know, the the story, I like the villains. 
Bond girls were pretty good as well. So I think it was a solid seven for me. What about you, Andy? I've given you my score out of ten. How did you rate this one? I also went seven out of ten. I thought this was a really strong film. We we texted a few days ago after we'd watched this, didn't we? And uh, one of the things I said was, to my earlier point, that it not didn't really feel like a Bond film. And it made me question my scoring because was I scoring it fairly as a, you know, the elements of a Bond film or was I scoring it just as a standalone film of how good it was? And uh, I think Seven is justified, but it does, it feels like a lot of the Bond films, I guess you could say, are standalone in the fact that they are different stories each time. But this is one that really stands out as a, if you watch one film in isolation, you don't miss anything. By watching this one, you, you know there's nothing where you you're not in on the joke or you need to understand previous relevance. It just feels like this is a standalone story and a standalone film, and uh, I thought a really solid effort. So seven out of ten. Yeah, I agree. You could definitely watch this one in isolation or watch um like you said out of order. You don't need to watch any of the other bonds, and it wouldn't even have to be a bond film. Like you said, you know it's. It could easily just be a normal spy film where someone's gone rogue. Completely agree. So we're off to a good start. Good ratings. We we enjoyed it. But did your wife enjoy this one? She did. And she agreed with us. It's better than Living Daylights. She also said Dalton makes a good bond. And I think she was a bit disappointed that he didn't make more. But as I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes, she's looking forward, forward to Prince Bosnan, who is obviously next. So her disappointed was disappointment was short-lived. Also, she did have a, a question, Andy, which you know I did think about, and I wanted to pose it to you. And then also another question, which I think I know the answer, but I, I pose it to you as well and our listeners. So then Mrs. said, because Bond has had his license revoked, does that mean everyone that is killed is murdered and therefore potentially chargeable by the authorities? And then the other question was, why? Because Felix had one of his legs bitten off, uh, but obviously she's seen the Daniel Craig films and Felix is in there with two legs. How come he has both legs? So the second part, I said, they basically rebooted the franchise. So therefore, it's a clean slate. And you could even say, what about Blofeld and stuff like that? What about the other bit, Andy? What do you reckon about the, the murder charges? He doesn't have that protection, does he, of working under a government or license to kill? No, I, I completely agree. The second question, I completely agree. It's a reboot, so therefore everything is reset, so I think everything is fair game, so that's fine. It's a fair point. The license to kill is revoked. He's technically, I guess, is he unemployed, technically, because he's revoked, or is he just simply suspended? Either way, he shouldn't be doing what he's doing. But he... And, and, and maybe that maybe that's the nuance. His license is revoked, but he's not necessarily no longer an agent. So maybe that's the loophole that makes him escape charges. Or maybe I'm overthinking it, but I feel like it does. It does feel like license revoked means he's a civilian, but I don't think they actually fire him, do they? In this, I think he is just more of a go go away on gardening leave for a little bit. Yeah, because he resigns, doesn't he? So, I suppose he doesn't. Well, he he doesn't get charged because he's basically done the Americans and the British government 
a favour by taking down the drug cartel. So I don't think he's getting people up on his charge. He might get a slap on the wrist. Or if you were M, you might send him to somewhere like Alaska or something like that for his next mission as a bit of, um, a bit, you know, a bit of punishment. He's probably got to do one of those training courses where you have to watch a presentation and talk about why it's not a good idea to kill people in the field when you don't have a licence. And they have to like get their post-it notes out and they put coloured pens and write on the flip chart. Like when you get caught speeding, you have to go and speed awareness course. Yeah, this is a, a murder awareness course that he has to go on. <laughs> yeah, so that's was, that was uh, um, the wife's fault. So yeah. Some good points there made by your better half. Uh, my better half didn't take part again in this one, but that goes without saying, I suppose. Okay, yeah. You never know. Um, one of these days, we'll, we shall see. I might, I might see it on the local news. Man forces wife to watch Bond. And, like, you know, it just shows you a photo and there's a woman strapped to a chair and you've got, like, Bond playing in the background. Could be in the news. You know, as soon as you said that, I'm, I'm skipping a few episodes ahead now, but the, the scene <laughs> in um, Casino Royale. Yeah. I can imagine that being the other way around, though, yes. You. <laughs> that's that's um, your missus doing that to you after you've made her watch one Bond film. <laughs> I hope she doesn't listen to this because it might give her an idea. <laughs> there we go. Let's let's get a few final few facts and then I'll let you talk into some of the more detailed research points. So this one's a runtime of two hour thirteen minutes. Again, same sort of ballpark, but I think this will put this as second longest or joint second longest in the franchise. But it's you know another two hour plus. This was released in nineteen eighty nine. And John Glenn is back for his fifth and final Bond film. As always, I like to talk about the money, so I'm going to kick off with the budget. So, License to Kill, $42 million budget. So, that means that the producers have increased the budget again, so this time by a further $2 million. And therefore, this is the most expensive Bond film so far in the franchise. Looking at the box office stats, it took $156 million. And when you adjust that, that's around $366 million in today's money. And that means it's the worst performing box office performance when you take it on the adjusted box office. So a disappointing return, especially for Dalton's last film in terms of box... It's, it's a healthy profit. And, you know, me and Andy have said this before. You're still looking at over $100 million profit in terms of against the budget, but it is the worst performing film in the franchise so far when you look at the adjusted box office and when you look at the the films that make up the bottom three films and we we will look at the box office stats later on timothy dalton actually occupies two spots in the last three bond films so that's a bit disappointing from a box office performance point of view but that kind of prompted a question why why has the dalton films performed so badly and me and Andy discussed this on last week's episode in terms of we didn't really rate The Living Daylight. So from my point of view, I think that's justifiable. But then when you look at License to Kill, you know, me and Andy have said we've enjoyed it. So in that terms, respectable. I know Andy would definitely be thinking Moonmaker would be lower than um, License to Kill. And I can think of some films as well that would be lower down. So why why did these perform so badly? And when you look at some of the box office in 1989, as Andy said, it came out, 
there was some serious strong competition. So when you look at spring summertime in 1989, License to Kill was against Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dead Poet Society, Star Trek V, Ghostbusters 2, Batman, Honey I Swank the Kids, Lethal Weapon 2, and When Harry Met Sally. And when I so when I mentioned about it, it took 156 million and like last Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade took like over 450 million. Batman took over 400 million. Lethal Weapon took over 200 odd million. Dead Poet Society took over 200 million. So there's a lot of competition there um, at at that point in time. So I think partly you could say that people went to see other films. I don't know what your view is, Andy, on that because when you look at those films that they're competing against, they're all strong films. Yeah, I agree. That's a kind of a who's who's list of you know big films with big name actors, and you know we're children of the nineties. Really, we were both born in the eighties, so we don't remember what the economy was actually like at that time. But you know, your money only goes so far, and if and if you're struggling or things in the economy are not well. And you've got to make your money stretch. Maybe you only want to see one or two films in the cinema, so you've got to you've got to make your choice that way. So it's uh, it's quite quite the competition to go up against. But another thing, and this kind of leads me into my point, that may have had an impact is the fact that this was the first film to be rated fifteen by the BBFC and rated PG thirteen in America by the MPAA. So that would suggests that you're limiting your potential audience because it's no longer considered as family-friendly as previous Bond films. So that could have had an impact as well. But uh, for listeners who, who are unaware, the 15 rating for BBFC is you can't see the film if you're under 15, and PG-13 is material maybe inappropriate for children under 13, just for any international listeners that don't understand the ratings. So what we had was... Uh, the BBFC demanded that 36 seconds were cut from the film. And actually the the first release of the film with, without the cuts made was in 2006 on the Ultimate Edition DVD. So, you know, a good 17 years later before you actually got to see what all the fuss was about. And another thing could be down to the marketing and promotion. So Broccoli has previously stated he didn't like how it was handled, and he also felt there was an impact because of the late title change. The original title was License Revoked, and a lot of the marketing and promotional work was based on that original title. Now, I, I, I mean, just kind of thinking off the top of my head, that's going to be quite a bit, quite a nightmare to change all the material. If it's a, if it's a last-minute change like that, and everything is working towards a specific title it must be quite difficult to to make that change at the last minute and also it's not like they're similar in terms of their meanings license revoked versus license to kill is they're basically polar opposites of each other so it's two different ways of putting a slant on it so that's um that's that's quite a tricky situation to navigate potentially and andy in terms of the license revoke i didn't write this down actually but apparently when they tested the the title with audiences people tended to think license revoked was more to do with driving and having your license revoked like that 
which I think, you know, if, if you go into a Bond film and it's called License Revoked, I don't think you're going to expect Bond to have his license taken off of him for driving um, infringements, are you? So, <laughs> but I think License to Kill, personally, is a better title. I don't know what your thoughts were. But yeah, that's definitely a, a factor. License to Kill is a cool title. License Revoked is lame. I, I don't want to see a film called License Revoked. Uh, another thing to, to mention here as well is Dalton, I think we mentioned this last week, Dalton was originally meant to feature in three Bond movies, uh, but there was various legal issues, so the, the following Bond, Bond 17, was delayed, and his seven-year contract period expired, and he declined to return to the franchise once everything was resolved. Hence why Dalton leaves it at two. Uh, a little bit more on the legal battle. Um, it was between Broccoli's company, Dan Jack, who owned the film rights, and MGM, which is the parent company of United Artists. And that's why we have this six-year gap from 89 to GoldenEye in 1995. The dispute came because Path Entertainment had bought MGM United Artists for $1.2 billion, and they became MGM Path, or Pathé. The, the new owners wanted to sell off the studio's catalogue, which include the Bond films, um, at a reduced price to finance the buyout. Dan Jack then lodged a lawsuit against Pathé, saying... This went against the original license agreement between Dan Jack and United Artists way back in 1962. And in the end, MGM Pathé had gone bankrupt, the company reverted back to MGM, and there was new financial backing from a French bank. That's, in a nutshell, which is you know, a pretty big nutshell, but it's a pretty complicated legal issue that had all kinds of impacts on not only this delay, but also on, on some of the filming, which we'll get into a little bit later on, but very, very messy times going on behind the scenes. Before we started to do this podcast and research, and obviously, I don't know if you recall that there was a gap, but I remember there being a gap before the podcast. You know, before we started rewatching it, I knew there was a gap of a few years between Dalton and Bosnian, but I, I never knew what the reason was until we started doing this podcast and, you know, the research that we put in. And we came, you know, we researched it and found out why. So it's interesting. But a question, Andy. Are you disappointed that Dalton never got a third film? Or are you are you glad thinking about... I know we haven't rewatched GoldenEye yet. But from your memory of GoldenEye, are you happy that Bosnian came in? Or are you thinking, oh, it's unfortunate we didn't get a Dalton, a third Dalton film in? Because you could argue... You could have had a third Dalton film, which wouldn't have been Goldeneye. It would have been something else, and therefore still had Bosnian as Goldeneye. Yeah, I mean, the timeline, it could slot in at like 91, 92, if this legal battle doesn't happen. I think, just as a as a fan, you know, take the, the podcast and the research out of the equation, I would say I don't need Dalton back for a third film, in all honesty. But I think now we've kind of rewatched under a different lens and we're we're studying it a little bit more and getting into some of the uh, the behind the scenes goings on. Part of me is intrigued as to what a third film would look like, just from an analysis perspective, to see if we are judging him fairly against other actors. You know, Lazenby obviously only had one bite of the cherry. So it's it's difficult to give him a fair comparison against Connery or Moore, who had six and seven respectively. So a two-film stint versus a six-film stint or a seven-film stint is not a like-for-like comparison. And if we think back to 
Connery, I use him as the example because he's currently top of our charts. Think of the film that really set set him apart from the others, and that's Goldfinger, which was film number three. We both have given that a very, very high rating. It was what we consider by far his best film. But it took him three films to get, you know, two films beforehand. It was the third film that got him there. So would the third Dalton film have been the highlight? You know, would it would he would everything have clicked into place and would have got that magical Bond film that maybe even topped Goldfinger in our rankings? I guess we'll never know. But that's just from a analytical mindset. But in terms of just as a fan, I'm I'm comfortable that two was enough. I think that's a well well put there, well articulated, Andy. And I have to say I agree with you. So, moving on, David Hedison returns to the Bond franchise and he plays Felix Leiter for a second time. So, this is interesting because he's the first actor to play Felix Leiter in more than one film. He's obviously played Leiter in Live and Let Die, and that was 16 years ago. So, he... He remains the only lighter actor to feature alongside two different Bond actors, which is obviously Roger Moore and Dalton. So I think that that was interesting. And Andy, I before watching rewatching this, I remembered that David Hedison played lighter in this film because I remember the like the wedding bits and you know um, where he gets his leg chopped off. So I remember that that the actor was playing lighter in this one before um, rewatching it. So John Glenn obviously has directed the most consecutive number of Bond movies in the franchise so far, and he's directed all the Bond movies during the 1980s. And I think that's quite nice, Andy, having a director come in and basically having the whole franchise for a, a decade. So that, that's pretty... I wonder how much... Con- he must have had quite a bit of control on that and put his kind of stamp on things. So that must have been quite nice. Even though the stories are independent of each other and he don't have a an overarching storyline to link, you know, all the 1980 films in. It must be nice to have, uh, a, not a free range, but uh, a good cracker. It's a, it's a good length of time to kind of really put your stamp on things and direct things in a, in a way that you want to go. And I think consecutively it kind of helps. I mean, I, I'm sp- speaking generally now, not necessarily about the Bond films in this case, but I would imagine it's it's easier to build momentum if you have consecutive films, as opposed to if you were dropping in and out. So if you did the first film and then the sixth film and then the tenth film, you you kind of lose that momentum and direction, whereas I guess in, in this case, doing five in a row, you can you can learn what worked well and apply that to the next film, or you can take what didn't work and remove it. So you get kind of natural improvement and a natural direction for the franchise along the way. Yeah, and obviously he oversaw two different Bond actors as well, hasn't he? Yeah, and that's that's quite interesting in its own right because we've got two very different interpretations of the Bond character, so that kind of in some ways go goes against everything I've just said. But it you know it's a, it's a, an interesting artistic challenge, I suppose, isn't it? It is, and you know coming on to my next point, License to Kill is also the final Bond film to feature Robert Brown as M. Caroline Bliss as Miss Moneypenny. So she's done two Bond films, both the Dalton films as Miss Moneypenny, as we mentioned in last week's episode. Another fun factoid, this is the first Bond movie, or the first official Bond movie, to not use a title from either 
a book or, you know, in terms of a novel or a short story by Ian Fleming. Um, and also, it's the only Bond film so far where there's no filming in the UK. So there's no studio in the UK used this time out. The film was shot in Mexico um, City and in the Key West of the USA. So it's it's a it's an American film rather than a British film. And and thinking about the eighties, Andy, there's definitely more of an American influence on there, isn't there? In terms of locations, supporting cast as well. There's definitely more of the American influence, and I don't know why. But there's definitely in the eighties, definitely feel that. Yeah, I think it started in the seventies as well, with more to an extent as well. Um, with you know, there was there was quite a few scenes in in the US. Vegas comes to mind with the uh, the circus circus scene and the the car chase around around the streets of Vegas, and then also the the sheriff whose name escapes me. You know, the the big old racist J-W. southerner, J W. That's the one. Thank you. Um, so yeah, there's. We saw elements of American influence, but I think it's more heavily pronounced in in the eighties, and particularly in the Dalton films. Yeah. So moving on, goofs and continuity errors. So we've only picked out a couple in this week's episode. So I'm going to kick this one off. So after Bond receives a lighter from Felix and Della, he uses it, and the flame is big. But you can actually see this. If you want to rewatch and pause it, you can see a tube that's basically connected um, to the lighter and it kind of goes up his suit arm. So you can see that's obviously being triggered there. Yeah, and another one we've called out is uh, around the shotgun, the mess it leaves when uh, in the bar where Bond meets Pam. It leaves a massive hole in the wall where you know a slug would make a single small hole and pellets would leave small several small holes this is just a huge hole that it leaves in the wall so it's a pretty powerful shotgun it must be when when that happened i said to the missus i said that's you know that's not right because it would be imagine the size of the bullet if it is that because it is like you know the smaller ones would have been more scattered and um, it just you know we don't have shotguns but that is how i would imagine it from watching other films in terms of shotguns and playing video games as well it's more like a cannonball, that, rather than a shotgun bullet. So let's get into the film now. So as mentioned in last week's episode, this is the same. So Timothy Dalton, basically, his sequence, the Gunbauer sequence, is using both films. And obviously, you know, he's only done the two films, so they didn't have to do any other versions like we've seen with um, Connery or the different colour buffs with Roger Moore. So Dalton walks quickly in, turns and fires, and he's crouching slightly when firing, and he shoots with one hand only. So just a quick um, whistle stop there on the old gun barrel sequence, which will obviously change next week, Andy, when we do Bosnan. Indeed it will. Dalton's not messing about. He's not paid by the hour for his, his gun barrel sequence. If you if Tarantino ever did a Bond film, do you think the gun barrel sequence would be Bond holding the gun sideways? <laughs> they do in Tarantino films. It would be some sort of machine gun type approach, I think, and uh, various expletives littered throughout, I'm sure. I am intrigued by the idea of a Tarantino Bond film. I think a lot of the um, the diehards or the uh, the traditionalists would absolutely hate it, but I, I'm intrigued by it. It would be very 
dialogue heavy, wouldn't it? A Tarantino Bond. It would. It would be, yeah. And it would probably involve Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt as well. Because they seem to be his actors of choice recently. And Samuel L. Jackson would be in it. Probably as Bond. I'm making the film for him. Tarantino, if you're listening, give me a call. I've got ideas. <laughs> let's let's get back onto License to Kill, though, before, uh, before we go on too much of a tangent. So, opening scene, we have Felix Leiter. He now works for the DEA, and it's his wedding day. Um, we see Leiter, Sharky, and Bond. They're on the way to the wedding, and something tells me they're going to be late. We see, we see a surveillance plane. It picks up uh, the drug kingpin, Franz Sanchez, flying into Florida and we're then introduced to the main antagonist Sanchez and his main henchman Dario Sanchez is played by American actor Robert Davi and Davi has been seen in a number of films and the ones that kind of come to my mind is The Goonies War Deal and Die Hard that's a pretty good CV has to be said Um, it was suggested by Cubby Broccoli's daughter and the screenwriter Richard Mybalm um, apparently he used a method acting technique in Licence Kill and remained in character offset. Uh, he also read Casino Royale in preparation and based Sanchez on Fleming's descriptions of Le Chiffre. So you know when they say about method acting, Andy, when your way he says he basically remained in character, I just get the impression that he's basically just got um, little white packets of cocaine and he's just like either trying to sell it to cast members and crew or is he basically just walking around with the, um, is it iguana, lizard? He's like walking around with that just draped over his shoulder as well. It's just like, what you know, because you see in news, don't you, about various actors um, doing method acting or staying in character, don't you? And the one I'm thinking of that comes to mind is Jared Leto playing a Joker in the Suicide Squad where he's supposed to have sent, you know, various things to cast members and stuff. It just being a method act doing that, I think, you know, method acting or character you know, being in character offset, it probably just get lets you get away with loads of stuff and just being like really um not necessarily nasty, but just like you don't, you don't have to be, you know, civil. You could just be really um rude and everything off camera and just get away with it because they're going, oh, Andy's just method acting, you know. He's saying in character, but you could be like just smashing up, taking stuff from the buffet, doing whatever, and <laughs> you're just getting that free reign. Yeah, the the example that came to mind was Jim Carrey in the film Man on the Moon where he played Andy Kaufman, and he insisted everyone on, on set called him Andy, and he, by all accounts, was a, an absolute bastard, for last, lack of a better term, um, in terms of the way he acted. But I, I'm, I'm now, I'm going off on a tangent here because you've got my mind racing. Like, what other actors from the Bond franchise, if they remained in character offset, would that? Wouldn't you, how would that have looked? I'm thinking odd job. Did he just go around like backstage throwing his hat at people and crushing and, golf um, balls? Yeah, and Jaws just going around biting everyone's neck. Imagine, ah, oh, but if we, if we were Bond. We could stay off character and then just sleep with all the female cast and we're just staying in character. So be like, wife, it's okay. I'm staying in character. And you're just surrounded by like octopussy and pussy galore and everyone. Yeah, just bring bring uh, one of the Bond girls home one day after work. It's like, I'm sorry, i got to work late tonight. 
Got a big meeting tomorrow. I'm just getting ready for it. Yes. Yeah. So we. Um, yeah. So back to it. So Davy also helped casting of um, Lupe Lamara by playing Bond in the auditions as well. So I thought that was quite good. And Dario is played by a fresh face, Benicio del Toro. And this was Del Toro's second film appearance. And when you're watching him, he does look very young. So he's actually only 21 when he filmed this. And this actually makes him the youngest actor to ever play a main Bond henchman. So there has been someone younger, but there wasn't the main henchman. There was a a secondary henchman. And from memory, I can't think who it is, but it was a female henchman. It was, that was... um, younger than del toro and i can't remember andy so feel free we can cut that out i'll leave it in and i'm just like waffling anyway so del toro has appeared in numerous films in his career and sicario sicario 21 grams traffic chi the usual suspects and lately the french dispatch and andy out of these ones i've seen traffic the usual suspects and that's it and sicario and they are good films. The the usual suspects jumps out for me. And when I think of Del Toro, I think I probably lean towards the usual suspects. Obviously he's in the the Avengers Marvel films, isn't he, as well as the I think it's called the Collector or something. And Sicario he's very it's quite he's scary. He's scary in Sicario. So I don't know if you've seen any have you seen any of these ones? The only one that comes to mind is Usual Suspects, which is an amazing film. Love that. The other ones don't ring. I feel like maybe I've seen Traffic, but I don't remember anything about it. But I certainly, you know, he's one of those distinctive actors. Like I've probably seen him count, you know, countless times in various films. But you've just happened to list ones that don't come to mind, other than Usual Suspects. Yes, uh, these are his his biggest films. Having researched them. But yeah, he's obviously appeared in numerous films. But Sicario is a good film, Andy, if you get around to it. It's around um, like drugs coming in from, I think it's Mexico. So it's, you know, I think it's based in Texas from memory. I've only seen it once. And he, he's a, um, a mysterious figure that's helping out the, the Americans. So it's definitely worth a watch. I'll bear that in mind. Um, yeah, fantastic actor. And proven by the fact that he won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor in Traffic back in 2001. Uh, This is an interesting stat. He's been nominated for 68 awards during his career and won 35 of them. That's a pretty good ratio and a pretty hefty number as well. So you have to say that's um, very impressive. And arguably, you know, this was his big break. And his second film appearance, a huge franchise in James Bond. What a way to get started in your acting career. Yeah, and Andy, I think, you know, I've, I've been nominated for zero awards and won zero. So is my percentage better than his? Uh, no, it is not. Because that would be zero. <laughs> or you could say 100%, couldn't you? You could. Actually, I, Andy, I have a, a, good I, point, have actually. Been, I have a degree in maths. I should know this the answer <laughs> to this question. I would just be um, argumentative. But I have been nominated for an award and I, I did win it. So, Andy, I was lying there. And I'm just using it to highlight my achievements of my one award from one nomination. 
is this a real award or is this like one of your kids got you a best dad mug at Christmas or something? I don't I don't get any kisses from my daughter on any cards. So no, I don't even get any of those awards from my kids. But no, it was a um it was something generic like um best or best employee or contribution or something in the last year and um I jointly won with this other person. So my claim to fame, I didn't win. Did I win? I don't think I won anything. Nothing, no prize or anything. A pat on the back. Anyway, we're, we're waffling and talking about various stuff. Your your real prize is your monthly salary. That's, that's, that's really what it's all about. Just like it is for this podcast, the amount you're paying me for this to do my co-hosting duties. Uh, but let's get back into it. Um, so Sanchez catches Lupe Lamore in bed with another man. Uh, she ordered, uh, excuse me, Sanchez then orders Dario to cut out the man's heart and gives Lamora a whipping with his belt. And this is a pretty, uh, this is kind of the first instance where this is, a, you know, the darker elements of the film. This is, this is quite savage. I would, and my note, Andy, was we're not, we're probably five minutes into the film and this film the, feels the most brutal movie already so far in the franchise. Yeah, hard to argue that. That's for sure. Let's uh, let's keep it rolling. Uh, Bond and Light are picked up by helicopter, but Lighter tells Bond he can only observe. It's not going to go down well. Yeah, so we see Sanchez give the DA, DEA and Bond the slip, so he basically jumps out the little jeep and leaves Dario and the other two henchmen to carry on driving. And he then ends up meeting Lamora, and the wife quipped here, saying, oh, this must be one of the first... This must be the first time that Bond meets a woman and doesn't sleep with her straight away and i just i just paused then andy because my note said something else i would just try to keep this family friendly so well restrained this will be the first podcast that's 15 rated or pg-13 um sanchez he manages to escape on his plane but he's shortly captured by the dea and bond uh this is this is a really cool visual actually so they they tie a rope to the plane whilst they're in the helicopter and then the helicopter kind of drags it up in the air so it's it's the helicopter is controlling the plane because of the rope it's it's a really really cool visual i, I really enjoyed that part i did and you can tell obviously you know films nowadays might have put that just as a something on green screen but they, they obviously did that in real life so i thought that was really really good and then Lighter and Bond then parachute down to Lighter's wedding, and my wife said, "You know, we've said, you know, this is five minutes into the film, and my wife is on my back already twice." So she commented here, "Oh, isn't it a coincidence that the helicopter was directly over the church?" <laughs> so they could. It's like Sanchez were going like, "I oh, know, let's let's make it convenient for Lighter and Bond. If I just fly this way." and get captured and then they can jump out the parachute you know airplane and parachute down to the wedding so i'm a minor inconvenience for them that's the kind of friendly henchman you want you know very polite i one thing i noticed at this point is obviously they're over the church and there's some camera angles where it looks like the plane is way way up in the air or the, sorry excuse me the helicopter is way way up in there in the air but when you're seeing angles like from on board the helicopter as if they're looking down, they're very, very close. And you could see very clearly that it is a wedding and you can see the guests and you can see their faces. But from the height that you see from other angles, 
that doesn't seem possible. So it just seems a little bit out of sync, that did. Yeah, I didn't pick that one up, Andy, but yeah, I saw your notes. I think, so the comment I made here, and just, I'm just going to really touch on it um, before we start moving on to the music, was, and you, you said, you know, this is your favourite scene, and my comment here was, good, strong start to the film. You can tell it's going to be gritty and darker, and my, you know, then being nice, was, it's nice to see lighter again. So, you know, I, I like having lighter in it. We've obviously had a number of films where he wasn't in it. He was obviously in last week's episode, last week's film. So I like having lighter in. I like a Bond having a friend. But sometimes it doesn't pay to be Bond's friend, does it, as we find out later. <laughs> later, not lighter. As you find out later. That was, that was a good pun there, even though it was accidental, yeah. Um, let's talk about the the music and credits. Uh, so The Living Daleks was the last film to be scored by John Barry, as we mentioned last week. He was due to compose for License to Kill, but had throat surgery, so it was considered unsafe for Barry to return to England to compose the soundtrack. So instead we had Michael Kamen, I mean, as composer. And now he had previously previously composed film scores for Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, uh, and the sequels to Lethal Weapon and Highlander. Um, He did the scores or soundtracks for a range of films following that, so Die Hard 2 and 3, Hudson Hawk, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, The Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, X-Men. That's quite the list of impressive films with you know soundtrack credits for Michael Kamen. Yeah, and the thing that I thought, yeah, definitely, and very action-focused films, aren't they? But there's, there's an um, actor that links a number of those films, Andy. Did you pick up on who that actor was? I put Andy. If he gets it wrong, I'm counting this as the quiz. I'm going to say this is like a bonus quiz. I've not. Uh, I'm trying to think. So, are we talking Die Hard, Lethal Weapon? Uh, our, well, and mm, no, because I mean, Die, Die Hard's Bruce Willis, and Lethal Weapon is yeah, it's the the Mel latter Gibbs, bit. So. Die Hard, Hudson Hawk, and the Last Boy Scout has a actor that appears in all of those. Mm, no, you're going to have to give that one to me, Bruce Willis. Oh, there we go. I, I've not seen Hudson Hawk or The Last Boy Scout. And that yeah, is oh. the <laughs> Hudson Hawk's a rubbish film, but The Last Boy Scout is is worth a watch. But yeah, he's Michael Kamen. Definitely got an action. And when you think about Robin Hood, Prince of Prince of Thieves, was obviously um, Brian Adams' big um, song there. Highlander was Queen. F- songs wasn't it or at least yeah there was more than one queen song in the highlander as well wasn't it yeah there was a few yeah yeah but yeah definitely um some good films in his cv there and kind of following on from that so cayman was nominated for two um, academy awards and won three grammy awards and two golden globes so the two academy award nominations were for don juan DeMarco and robin hood prince of thieves and Cayman did win two Golden Globes for these films as well. And Eric, so kind of following on from this as well, Eric Clapton and Vic Flick were both asked to write and perform the title song for License to Kill. And interestingly, Andy, I didn't know this until doing the research, Flick was the lead guitarist on the track James Bond theme from Dr. No, and he also contributed to the James Bond soundtrack from the 60s to the 80s. And he, he plays the... Um, because I'm not a musician, he he plays certain 
notes from the James Bond theme. Um, I can't think of what their musical terminology is, but he's the one that kind of did the actual strumming of the guitar on the memorable James Bond theme. I can't think what the the correct terminology is there for um, music. Um, musicians will be like going, oh, you know, probably on my back about this. But yeah, that is flick. That's, yeah, I don't know the terminology either. It's probably something like, is it a riff? Is it a... That's the only word that came to mind, and it's probably wrong. I don't know. But I think I get what you mean. A certain distinctive sound or distinctive tune or part of the tune is, is his signature. Might be fair to say. Yeah. Okay, we we mentioned this earlier, but Gladys Knight is the one that sings the theme song. Uh, better known for Gladys Knight and the Pips. Um, she won seven Grammy Awards with 22 nominations. That is, again, a very impressive CV that she has. Um, so we're talking we're talking top level musical artists here. Let's uh, let's move on though. Let's get into the film proper now. We've gone past the opening scene and credits. We're in Florida, wedding scene, um, or we- wedding is in is in the area. But we we're in the interrogation room with Sanchez and the DEA agents Killifer and Hawkins are interrogating him. Sanchez offers a $2 million bribe to anyone who helps him break out of custody. A lot of money for those days, I would imagine. Yes. And I've not converted it today to today's money, unfortunately, Andy. Probably around 5 or $6 million, I would, I would guess, based on uh, the previous calculation. Tempting, isn't it? Obviously, I wouldn't do that. So, Hawkins is played by Grand L. Bush, and... He did look familiar when I was watching this. He's got one of those kind of faces. And I picked this up. So Bush also appeared in Die Hard alongside Robert Davy. So Bush and Davy played FBI agents Johnson and Johnson in Die Hard. And as, you know, as mentioned in last week's episode, the actor who played Necros, Andres Wisniewski, however you pronounce that, um, in The Living Daylights, also appeared in Die Hard. So in the space of two films, we've had at least three characters appear in Die Hard and the musical composer from Die Hard. So nice little... I've mentioned it before, Mandy, you know, the old seven, six degrees of separation, whatever it is. Six degrees? Six degrees, yeah. Yeah. So we've had the six degrees of separation. I've mentioned it before, Andy. So another little link there. And Bush has also appeared in numerous films, but mostly during the 80s and 90s. And he's appeared in Brewster's Millions, The Color Purple, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, you know, Link again there. Um, Interestingly, he played two different characters, so he wasn't the same character in both those films. Um, Demolition Man, so we're moving into the 90s now. Street Fighter and one of Andy's favourite, Forrest Gump. One of my favourites indeed, yeah, so fantastic film i hope one day we get to talk about that on a future podcast in the months and years to come just throwing that out there um let's talk a little bit about the character ed killifer played by everett mcgill mcgill um small acting resume compared to some of the others um, but appeared in a number of hits including the 1984 version of dune field of honor heartbreak ridge and twin peaks as big ed hurley um he retired in 1999, but came out of retirement to film the revival of Twin Peaks in 2017 at the request of David Lynch. 
he's one of those actors that I thought I've seen him in something, but when I look through his resume, I've not seen any of his films apart from Licence to Kill. So uh, he must have one of those faces that is just, I don't want to say common, but, you know, mistakable for someone else. So I've not seen Dune, I've not seen Twin Peaks, and I've not seen the other films when I looked at his resume. And so we're moving on now. So, you know, we've, we've, we've focused on some of the actors that we've seen so far at the beginning of the, the film. And we see Bond and newly married bride, Della, being very friendly and very kissy. And the wife commented, so again, you know, she, she's making comments already. You know, a few, I think this is our third or fourth one already. That is very weird interaction. And how many brides kiss the best man? And it's like, well, yeah, it's a... I thought it was weird, and the wife thought it was weird. And Andy, you commented on this as well. I did, yeah, and I, I mentioned this point to my wife, actually, that this happens in the film. And she also thought it was weird. But I, I the quote was that, that Della said was, the bride always gets to kiss her best man. And the, the comment I wrote... Well, the second comment I wrote after I removed <laughs> the expletive that I used was, the hell she does... That is not a thing. Like, let's not let's not encourage that sort of behaviour. You don't want to be cheating on your your new husband day of wedding. Just throwing that out there to any prospective brides. Not a good idea. Yes, and if your future bride wants you to have multiple best best men, then beware. And if your future bride hand selects those best men rather than using <laughs> your own friends, really beware. If she wants her own friends, <coughs> her own friends in air quotes um the marriage is doomed get out of there while you can but let, let's uh, let's not put people off the sanctity of marriage uh, let's talk a little bit about Della played by Priscilla Barnes who has also appeared in quite a, not, a lot of movies and TV movies and episodes including Three's Company Jane the Virgin More Rats The Crossing Guard Devil's Reject just to name but a few and Andy I'm going to pick one title out of that because I love the film More Rats, Kevin Smith film, and I was thinking, who is she in um, More Rats? So I googled it, and luckily I did it with no kids around. So have you seen More Rats? I have. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it, but I don't remember much about it. It's a long, long time ago. So she's the three-nippled fortune teller. <laughs> so when I did it, because when I search for actresses or actors, I like to do images. So I can then kind of get a visual thing and then I kind of deep dive onto like, you know, pages like Wikipedia, IMDb. So when I type that in, I just cut lots of pictures of um, a woman with like lowering her top to reveal three nipples. So I'm glad I did it with no kids around. And my wife might have walked in and saw what I was looking at and thinking, blimey, his tastes have changed a bit since walking on him, you know, looking at other pictures on the internet. So, yeah. So I just wanted yeah, she's to going to be thinking uh, two nipples are just not enough anymore. And I wonder if she's Scaramanga's wife or sister or something. They share that trade, <laughs> a Bond linkage there. So moving on, so we see Bond is talking to Lighter and then Ed comes in and he gives Bond this playful punch on the kind of like the upper arm shoulder area. Um, and Bond doesn't seem impressed at all he kind of he does a look um and i and i can't tell Andy, and i don't know if you picked it up 
whether Bond and Ed know each other or not before this scene. Because obviously Bond and Lighter know each other. But I don't know whether they, this is the first time that Bond and Ed meet. I can't remember the dialogue. But he, he, he came in and very friendly, wasn't he? Well, punch on the shoulder, you know. Yeah, a little bit too familiar. Bit, a bit like um, friend of a friend. I thought you were going to say a bit like over-familiar, like Della. Being Not over. that over-familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but talking about Della, then Ed then makes some comment about coming to kiss the bride. So it's not only the best man best man that gets a kiss, it's work colleagues, I suppose you could say now, can't you, as well? Random men off the street, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's just lining up to kiss the bride. This is a weird, weird wedding. Um, but speaking of the wedding, there is a wedding present for Bond. He receives an engraved lighter. Uh, and he seems genuinely touched by it. I think you know Bond is showing that he does have a human side, after all. Bond leaves. Uh, we see Sanchez in a police transport van. He's being taken away. Uh, and Killifer then helps Sanchez escape. He forces the police van to crash into the sea. And there's a small sub waiting for Sanchez, and he escapes. Um, one thing I noted kind of just before he's... He leaves as he's being placed in the police van. There seems to be a lot of press attention for him. So he's almost like, I don't want to say a celebrity, but he's clearly a well-known figure in that part of the world. Yeah, very infamous. I would just try to think of some famous drug lords, but I couldn't think of any Andy. But yeah, he's very um, popular. And considering that he is from... Central slash South America because I can't quite remember whether the made up country whether they specify South America or Central America, whereas obviously he is caught in America, isn't he? So that is American press. Yeah, Florida. So I'm assuming Central America because of where Florida is in relation to Central America, but it's a made up country anyway, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, and your geography might be better than me, but based on the research, apparently the 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 country they made up was kind of based on Panama. Panama's definitely Central America. You've got the, the Panama Canal running straight through the middle, which kind of separates north and south. There you go, a bit of free geography lesson for, for you and our listeners out there. So Felix and Della are captured by Dario, and Felix is taken away, and he's later fed to the shark by Sanchez and his men. So... My question to you, Andy, and listeners, why do we have Bond villains that love feeding people to sharks? I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a very valid one. Um, I know sharks are probably wrongfully accused of you know, eating people all the time, which I don't think is actually true. I think there's, there's very rare occurrence that it happens in nature. But yeah, there, there does seem to be that kind of aura about them that the best way to kill a person via sea creature <laughs> is with a shark. A very specific way of murdering. Let's carry on. So Bond is at the airport now. He, you know, his job's done. He's going home. Only he finds out that a drug lord has recently escaped, so he knows what's going on. So he rushes back to Lighter's place, and that's where he finds that Della has been murdered. And he also then discovers a body bag in Lighter's office. Lighter's in it, but still alive. Missing a leg, badly, badly injured. Um, and there's a note on him that reads, he disagreed with something that ate him. And um, I, I know we'll we'll carry on a bit. I'm just kind of skipping ahead a little bit. 
he is very, very upset and visibly shaken here, which is somewhat unusual, I would say, for Bond to show that level of emotion. Uh, I agree, but Andy, so did they deliberately place Lighter's body on the sofa as a symbol of power and basically Sanchez is saying, I'm not scared of you and this is what happens when people kind of interfere in my business. Because there's loads of, you know, if you watch a non-Bond film, say like a gangster film, people just disappear, don't they? And sometimes you never find a body. Yeah, th- this is the exact opposite. This is, he wants them to be found. He wants people to know what he's done. So, sloppy work maybe if the intention is to kill, but I'm not sure that it is. I think this is very deliberate. Although I do, I do wonder whether he meant to kill them both and Lighter just happened to survive. Like, did, did they, obviously they didn't wait until he died before transporting him back to his place. So were the, was the intention for someone, whether it was Bond or someone else, to find two dead bodies, and it was just, you know, sheer luck that Lighter survived, or was it intended that way? And I'm not sure I know which it was. Um, I made a note as well that the only other time I can think of this kind of emotion was George Lazenby in Honor Majesty's Secret Service when Tracy's killed. That's when he shows genuine emotion. And this, for, from Dalton is probably only the second real display of that in the whole franchise. So it's quite an interesting departure from what we've seen so far. But let's let's move on. We're next in the docks and Hemingway House. Um, so we see Bond sneaks into the Ocean Exotica warehouse, and it, that's where he discovers that drugs are being kept in the live food storage. And there's a, quite I would say, quite an amusing scene where Bond pulls one of the guards into an electric eel tank. Yeah, that, that's a, a good one. And... Killifer tries to kill Bond, but Bond gets the upper hand and Killifer hangs above the shark tank and Ed is like, try to, he's not bribing, he's, trying, he's not trying to bribe Bond, but he's basically saying, you know, oh, you can have, I think he says you can have half of it, I think from memory. Um, and, but Bond then just throws a case containing the $2 million at Killifer, who then falls into the tank and then and then is eaten by the shark. So Bond does it a lot more efficient than Sanchez. That is that is how you kill someone, by proxy, by using a shark proxy. So definitely Sanchez could be learning from Bond there. Um, and then we see Bond is walking on the streets, and then he's near Hemingway House, and he's, he's then escorted into Hemingway House, which has lots of cats on the, you know, in the film. And... This one, Andy, I must admit, bypassed me. And it was only during my research I picked this up. So, you know, you're a bit more sophisticated um, than me. I mean, I still read comics, so I, I don't read anything about um, anything from Hemingway. So Ernest Hemingway lived here between 1931 and 1939. And the reason that there are lots of cats is because Hemingway used to have a six-toed cat. And this was given to given to him by a ship captain. So nowadays, there's approximately approximately 60 cats at Hemingway House today. And some of those cats are descendants of the original Hemingway's cat. Imagine being on litter duty box with 60 cats. No, thank you. That's all I can say to that that task. That's that's quite an interesting one. I didn't, I didn't really know that. I don't know much about Hemingway. I'm, I'm not as sophisticated as, as I sometimes appear. 
And there was a fancy word for six toed, but I couldn't pronounce it, so I just kept with six toes. Because oh, go on. I can't put it down, but yeah, there were I want to Google it. Let's get you to say a word. So I can I can tell you that a cat uh, with a physical anomaly where usually they're born with more than the number of toes is called a polydactyl cat. I remember it sounding like a dinosaur. So yes. So yeah. Education there. Geography, science, maths. Welcome to school, kids. Let's let's carry on with the film there. So M gives Bond a bit of a ticking off. He orders Bond to take a mission in Turkey. Bond refuses and resigns, so M revokes Bond's license to kill. Hence the license revoked slash license to kill title kerfuffle mentioned earlier. Uh, Bond escapes under gunfire from Hemingway House and uh, continues his mission to take down Sanchez. Bond has gone rogue. Um, There's a scene also which includes another reference to Hemingway. Uh, Bond says, it's a farewell to arms when he resigns, which of course is a novel by Hemingway. We move on to the Wavecrest next, which is the marine research vessel of Milton Crest. Crest played by Anthony Zerb, um, who you might recognise from Star Trek Insurrection or The Matrix Reloaded, Revolutions and various other shows from the 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, and we see Milton trying it on with Lamora, who knocks him back. And my comment here, Andy, is Milton must be very brave or very stupid considering that the last person that got it on with Lamora that wasn't Sanchez had his heart cut out. So I'm thinking he's probably more stupid than brave. So we see Bond uses a manta ray disguise to get closer to the wave quest. And... The wife again, so she's on it. This, you know, in this movie, she's on it. So you know, she's not looking at her phone. She's not dropping off. She's, she's just throwing questions at me in comments. So the wife comment here was, "Where did Bond get this from?" And she also said it looks like Batman, and it's a fair point because he's gone rogue now. So did he just happen? Did he go to some kind of fancy dress shop to get you know a manta ray disguise? And when I saw bond in the manta ray disguise the memory it brought back to me was when bond was dressed in a gorilla outfit in octopussy do you remember that way he's watching the um one of the knife throwers guarding the bomb that's that was my memory there the the manta ray disguise is a little bit more bespoke than a gorilla costume though i would say but it is i think it's a fair comment you know where did he get it from you know he He's lost access to Q now, Q branch. So, you know, or has he just, yeah, because he isn't, he hasn't even got the money from Sanchez yet, has he, from the, the seaplane. So what budget has he got and where is it, where has he got it from? So I think that's a valid comment. And again, I, you know, I think it does look like Batman from above. So some valid comments there from the missus. So Bond sneaks onto the wave crest and we shortly see a diver come back to tell Crest that he's killed Sharky. And now Bond has lost two friends already in this movie. You could say lost two friends because obviously Felix is alive still, but you could count Della as a friend. They seem very friendly. So it's not very it's not it's not good business being in uh, being a friend of Bond. Yeah, you probably want to stay clear of him, maybe not invite him over for dinner anytime soon. Uh, but Bond gets his revenge. He harpoons the man that killed Sharky 
and then jumps into the sea to avoid getting shot. And we've got a bit of an underwater chase at this point. And Bond destroys some of the drugs that are in the underwater vehicle. And I have another question as well. Why did Bond destroy some of those drugs? Why does he let them leak into the sea? Like, what's what's the point of that? I know he's out for revenge, but this just seems a bit petty. I, I think it's down to there's not much else you can do. You, because he's getting chased by, you know, the, the guards, henchmen of Milton Crest. There's not much he can do. He's trying to maximise the the most dam, you know, as much damage as possible in the shortest time. So he's slashing and cutting the bags, isn't he, and letting the drugs kind of um, absorb into the the sea. So I think I think it's a valid action, Andy, because he is just maximising, and he's basically costing the um, Sanchez and Milton just loads of money by doing that as well, isn't he? Because if you toss it or whatever, you still it's still going to be fine. So that's why he's slashing it. It's a fair point. Asked and answered. Thank you, Jack. <laughs> um, I I made a note at this point, and you know, this this is the point where it really kind of sunk in how dark the film is because Bond. You know, there's there's the occasional moment of humour here and there, but not nothing like we've seen in previous films. And there's no one-liners, and Bond is not really in that. That not arrogant, but you know he's he's always got something to say, regardless of the situation. He's got a quip or a a joke or a one liner. There's nothing about uh, Dalton at this point in terms of his portrayal that indicates that. You can tell that this is personal for Bond, which uh, is a bit of a departure. I agree, and I would have loved to seen this Bond in Diamonds Are Forever. The one, you know, where Connery kills the, we think, Blofeld in the in the mud. You know, that, yes. that scene, you know, but he's already been um, cloned. You know, um, a double. And he makes a quip, doesn't he? But, it's, you know, we commented on that episode. It's all quite lighthearted considering Blofeld, you know, was the reason why Tracy died, you know, got assassinated. Whereas this yeah. is, like you said, it, it's dark, gritty. No one-liners, no messing around with jokes. This is personal. This would have been a great bond for when, you know, after um, his wife was murdered. Yeah, and a more natural reaction, I guess, to to such a, a vengeful act. Yep. So Bond then escapes by harpooning onto the seaplane and then climbs in the plane and escapes with Sanchez's money. Whenever, you know, we type out seaplane now, Andy, I just think about the whole scenario when you know we're talking about boat plane plane boat and stuff so always i always get a little smirk when typing up seaplane and we now move to the bowel head bar so bond travels to the bowel head bar and meets with pam and the note i made here andy was this isn't the usual place that bond goes to it's very can't think of the word but it's not very. It's not this usual casino or upmarket venue, is it? Watering hole. Something of a dive bar, you might say. It's not sophisticated. You're not going to get the martini in an establishment like this, I would assume. No, I don't think you get any alco pops there, would you? No, J two O is not on the the menu either. It's you know there's, there'll be no non drinkers in there. That's for sure. 
But Bond's not the only one there. Dario arrives. We've got some goons, and everything breaks down. There's a you know there's a big bar fight, and a question in the notes here, which is a very valid one. And it's not just for this film. It's many many films. Why is it that when a, a fight breaks out, everybody gets involved, even if it's just between two people, they have a reason for fighting. Everyone around them just starts fighting as well. It's a very strange coincidence that happens. In many many things and you also see that play out as a distraction method as well where i watched a tv program recently where the the main character deliberately starts a bar fight so he can escape because he's being followed by someone so even he knows that he's all going to kick off so he can escape i watched roadhouse recently that's got some pretty decent bar fights in has to be said uh, another note from, from this particular bar fight, though. So everyone's fighting, but one of the dancers is still dancing. She's on like a podium type thing, still performing as everything is kicking off around her, which I thought was quite amusing. Um, another thing to note, let's talk a little bit about Pam Bouvier. It's very different from a lot of the Bond girls that we've seen earlier in the franchise. She can clearly look after herself, very independent, not the, the usual quote-unquote damsel in distress that we've seen in previous films, I would say. Um, a little bit about the actress. Uh, so Pam Bouvier is played by Carrie Lowell, um, best known for starring in Law and Order. Also appeared in about a dozen movies, range of TV shows and TV movies. And she took some time away from acting in the 2000s before returning back to the screens just a few years ago in 2018. So we leave the barrel head bar now. We cut to a very short scene at MI6 and we're... We, we see M and Miss Moneypenny, and Miss Moneypenny is visibly upset about Bond resigning, so she's sharing a tear. But we only have that. That is probably a scene that lasts one, two minutes tops. So we, we leave MI6 because it's just a brief scene, and we're in Isthmus City. And this is a fictional country of the Republic of Isthmus. And he is at Isthmus City. So think of it as like Mexico City, but not in Mexico, basically. And Bond checks into the hotel and he's with Pam and he requests fresh flowers every day and states that Pam is his executive secretary. And then he makes some remark to Pam because she, she you know, she's a bit miffed off that this is a man's world down here. And then Bond then sends Pam away to buy some decent clothes. Now, when he was requesting fresh flowers, Andy, I was thinking, blimey. You know, that's going to cost a bit. Then I remembered, oh, yeah, he took Sanchez's money, so he's not even spending his own money requesting that and then sending his executive secretary to get some decent clothes. Yeah, this is this is the moment where we go back to full-on chauvinistic pig Bond, don't we, with his man's world comment. Interestingly, Bond can't have hay fever if he's ordering fresh flowers every day. Um, yeah, unlike No us. way you'd want to do that if you're a sufferer. No, no. I'm trying to think what I would would request. Probably just fresh towels. That would be my <laughs> my thing. I'd be throwing my towels in the bath to be replaced every day. I'd have to be throwing other people's towels in to be washed every day as well, <laughs> just with that that amount of money. Um, but he needs to keep it somewhere safe rather than in the suitcase, so he takes it down to Banco de Isthmus. Uh, just a small deposit of several million dollars that is deposit. He's got the suitcase with him, which has the money. And then the next shot, we see the money out of the suitcase. And it's all over various surfaces. There's a table, there's a desk. And there's just no way that all that cash would fit in that suitcase. Because 
the size of the suitcase versus the the amount of space this cash is taking up just doesn't match. So, rhetorical question that I have here. So, you know, feel free. We'll move on straight afterwards. But was the suitcase made by the same company who made Mary Poppins handbag? Anyone who's not seen the film Mary Poppins won't understand that reference. But we're moving on anyway. We see Bond next. He's in the casino. Of course, he is. A uh, bit of a slow start, but then he starts winning. And at that point, Sanchez sends Lamora down to the table to scope him out. Pam, in, in parallel with this, is going to the bar to get Bond's vodka martini. And Bond goes up to meet Sanchez. So Pam just downs Bond's drink. And she's acting quite jealous at this point. You know, They're supposed to be professionals working together. But she seems to have a bit of a, a personal interest in him, and she's acting in quite a jealous manner. Not for the not for the last time as well, it has to be said, which we'll, we'll talk about as we get to those points in the movie. Yeah, so as you mentioned, Andy, she's not your typical Bond gal, up in, you know, the, the ones that we've had in a franchise so far, but she's definitely yeah, acting jealous and um, threatened, maybe, by Lamora. But this is just a, a, a throwaway comment. So there, there is a comment around this scene as well. And I can't remember who says it. It's someone in Sanchez's group. And I can't remember if it's Sanchez where there's a remark around an oriental party because they've got some people over from um, the Far East, obviously, in terms of the... There's a presentation later on. And Bond gets to meet Sanchez, and Bond offers out his hand to shake, but Sanchez leaves Bond hanging. And this reminded me, Andy, of the film, you will know this, but where Bond goes to shake hands with Stromberg. Do you remember where Bond is warned about not to shake hands, but then he walks in and basically offers his hand, and he's left hanging again, isn't he, by Stromberg? Is it Spy Love Me? Yes, it is a spiral of me because it's the Russians, the British and the American submarine, isn't it, that is caught. So Bond goes back to his hotel room and is told that his uncle has arrived. And it's Q. So Q, I thought this is nice because obviously, you know, there's been banter between Q and Bond. Q makes a quip that it, if it wasn't for Q branch, Bond would likely be dead. So I thought that's nice that the only one from MI6 that's come out to help Bond is Q. Yeah, could you argue that Q has gone rogue by helping Bond out at this point? I suppose technically he has. Yeah, and I don't recall whether Q says anything else. Like, has... Because I think he's come on his own accord. It's not like... He doesn't mention, does he? Like, oh, M has asked me to come on holiday or anything like that. So I do think he, he's gone out. He's on his, you know, he's gone out on his own. You, you know, like you said, has gone rogue. Yeah, he's, he's found some spares lying around the office in terms of some of the gadgets and just rounded them up and decided to pay his buddy a visit with them. I think that's what happened. Uh, Pam is still upset with Bond at this point um, and she goes to her room alone, so Bond has to share a room with Q. And I think he makes some snide comment about, I hope he doesn't snore. I hope he don't snore. Um, but yeah, very interesting behaviour from Pam at this point. You know, I gave her a lot of credit earlier in the pod by saying she was... a uh, a different breed of Bond girl, but she's not really showing it at this point. Later on, Bond tries to assassinate Sanchez via the exploding toothpaste. He's laid it around the window and he's got a sniper point across the street. But Bond is jumped by several ninjas and Sanchez survives. Uh, we then see Bond 
being questioned by the Hong Kong police in a remote house before they're attacked by Colonel Heller and Sanchez, and they found, excuse me, they find Bond tied up, and they assume he's an ally. So we've got the arrival of the wave crest, and Bond has already planted the seed of doubt in Sanchez, and because he mentions that he overheard when he's being interrogated, the the person helping him out is arriving tonight, knowing for a while that Milton Crest is coming. So he's planted that seed of doubt, and Bond, Pam, and Q then travel to the docks, and. Pam pretends to be the harbour pilot, so she's wearing the outfit, a, a hat as well. But all the crewmen on the wave crest are just like really surprised that the harbour pilot is a woman and they're just kind of like staring at her. And Pam then gets control of the, do you call it a will on a ship? But anyway, so she, she accelerates and then forces the ship to crash, um, to crash. And then we see Pam, Bond and Pam infiltrate the wave crest. And this is where they plant Sanchez's money in the pressure chamber so they they kind of go in I don't know what you call it but the bit at the bottom of the ship that is open where they drop the submarines and they, 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 that's how they enter but I've made a note here so you see a couple of Sanchez's henchmen arrive because they're they're scoping out the the wave crest because you know they're working for Sanchez Sanchez is a bit suspicious of Milton so they're scoping out the place and they find the cash so they go and tell Sanchez now, Bond is in the water already, and Pam was hiding, and then she manages to get into the water, but she does it really quietly, and it just seemed like it was too quiet. I don't know if you've ever tried to get into a swimming pool or a bath or something like that, Andy, but she does it without making any noise. I don't know if you noticed that. It's really stealthy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess she's putting a lot less weight into the water than I would be. <laughs> So, so less of a natural splash that I would have. But no, interesting point. Um, so at this point, so Milton Crest is killed by Sanchez in the pressure chamber. So he thinks Crest has double-crossed him. Bond's plan's working out quite nicely here. Um, the scene where Crest dies, his head kind of balloons and then explodes. Um, and I think you noted that it's a reminder of the thing. Yeah, it's a pretty bad, pretty gruesome death, I thought. And Sanchez makes makes a quip about laundering the cash after it's covered in Milton's blood, but he he does it in a quite a sadistic way rather than a humorous way. I think it's um, yeah, it's it's a pretty pretty intense scene, I would say this. And I agree, Andy. I think thinking about the deaths in the Bond franchise that we've seen so far, it is definitely up there as the visually most gruesome death that we've had. Yeah, hard to argue that. Very very graphic. Um, let's move on a little bit further. Bond's hotel room and uh, the Olympotech M- Meditation Institute, easy for me to say. Um, Q pulls a funny expression when Lamora tells Pam and Q that Bond spent the night with her and how much she loves him. And Pam, you know, yet again, she's really annoyed by this. Yeah, and we see Q now is undercover as a road sweeper and he uses the walkie-talkie, which is in a a road sweeping brush to communicate and then he just throws it away and two things here Andy I thought of when Roger Moore was undercover pretending to be Scaramanga and he basically was just getting in the car and threw his third nipple over and obviously I mentioned that in that podcast but the wife also commented to say well that's a waste of equipment (laughs) he's like literally just threw it away after using it 
he might need that for another time. Yeah, I would imagine it's a lot more expensive than the third nipple as well, considering what it can do. It's not just a small piece of equipment. This is, you know, quite a, I don't want to say sophisticated piece of kit, but it's a large piece of electronic equipment as opposed to just a small skin accessory. Yeah, and would you want your gadgets from Q Branch to be found by random people? Probably not. They'll end up on eBay, won't they, these days, if you found it? Or would that be Cubay? <laughs> there's, a, there's a business idea there for, for someone in a very niche market. Um, let's, let's carry on with the film. So Bond learns that Sanchez, a scientist, can make cocaine chemically undetectable if they dissolve it in gasoline. Um, and then they dis- they sell it disguised as fuel to some Asian drug dealers. And the buying and selling, I, I thought this was really quite clever. It's, they're conducted via fundraising television programs. So the, the aforementioned fake American televangelist, um, who is Professor Joe Butcher, is doing these fundraising television programs. But what they actually are are drug deals. And I think that's, that's quite clever to do it so boldly out in the open and yet people are none the wiser as to what's actually going on. I agree and also I wonder whether there's been any drug dealers in real life that have tried to mix cocaine and gasoline to transport it. I wonder how scientifically accurate that method is. If we do have any drug dealers who listen to the podcast feel free to to let us know how you disguise your cocaine whether you use gasoline or other methods. So Dario arrives at the complex and is very suspicious of Bond because he's wearing a face mask like everyone else is during the tour of the drug-making base. But he makes a comment. He asks someone, um, who, who's this new guy? Um, so he's, he's scoping Bond out. And Bond clocks Dario. You could really feel the suspense here because Dario is stalking Bond, who obviously doesn't know Bond, but he's very suspicious. And Bond is trying to avoid Dario. And then they have to take the... Well, then they're told you can take the face mask off. So Bond, take the face mask off. And Dario recognises Bond. And uh, there's a small struggle here. And Bond manages to start a small fire. Now, this prompts a mass evacuation. And the fire apparently spreads. Now, Andy... When this happened, me and the wife both commented on this, saying it was a little fire, and I know there's chemicals around, there's, there's gasoline drugs, but it seemed to spread far too quickly. But also, in a lab, surely they have fire extinguishers or fire blankets. Because then, like, a scene later on, or like within minutes, it's basically spread across the whole complex, hasn't it? from that little fire in the corner of that um, little lab. Yeah, this, this is the very definition of that escalated quickly. And you're, you're right, it's, if it's a real working lab, there'd be some sort of safety mechanism in place that wouldn't be all the flammable, flammable chemicals. Say that three times fast. There wouldn't be so many flammable chemicals just lying around to combust like they did. So yeah, it's a, it's a, a fair challenge. So there's a machine that kind of cuts up the drugs, almost like a, I guess, a grinder type thing or a blender. And Bond is nearly killed in it. Um, but they, but Pam and Bond manage to take care of Dario, and he meets a pretty gruesome bloody death as well. And Bond, uh, sorry, excuse me, Pam then turns to Bond and says, you all right? 
And and Bond has no time for quips and jokes. He just says, switch the bloody machine off, as he's still hanging over. Um, which I, I, I found that quite... It wasn't meant as a funny line, but I found it quite amusing just because it was so un-Bond-like. Like, he's got no time for jokes. It's like, just switch the bloody machine off. Like, it's a very direct order to the point. Like what a real person would say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, Andy. All right, so, I'm going to say this next statement. And this, ne- this nearly made my favourite scene. But the, then, the, then I'm going to explain why it didn't. So... We have the lorry chase now, and you know it's quite a lengthy lorry chase. There's various bits, you know, in this scene. So obviously, in the previous film, Bond flips the the car on one side, but he does it with the lorry, so that seemed a bit far fetched. But then he also does a wheelie. So my comment here was: this race was initially really enjoyable. That then it went a bit far fetched. So that kind of made me not pick it as my favourite scene because it was enjoyable. There's there's various elements to this lorry race chase. But it was just those bits where I thought, oh, that that's kind of ruined it um as well. And also it didn't help where the wife is commenting to say the the same point. And then there's a bit where Bond is being chased and there's like a truck behind him and there's three henchmen on the back of the pickup truck shooting him. And then Mrs. saying, oh, it looks like he's being chased by the Three Stooges. So that kind of took me out at the moment. So that kind of why it wasn't my favourite scene. But I did enjoy that scene initially. It was a, a good chase. Yeah, it was a, it was a good scene. Um, but I agree with you about particularly the wheelie. Like, I just don't understand how a lorry could do a wheelie. Surely that's the thing for a bike, not a, a vehicle like that. And the lorry is front heavy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You'd, you'd think it would more likely go over on its front wheels rather than onto its back. Which is, is it called a fonty? What is the technical term? I don't think when we were kids doing those kind of things. I don't know. Any kids out there or BMX is, any BMX riders out there, feel free to let us know what the terminology is. Yeah, take us back to our, our youth. It's been a long time since we I did things like that, so I can't remember what they're called. But not only do we get uh, some lorries involved here. We get uh, a scene where Bond is in a plane and Sanchez is in a car, and there's a bit of a chase. And there's more dodgy green screen. And I feel like a broken record because I mention it quite a lot. But you know, we're now 27 years into the Bond franchise, and there's been no advancement in the green screen technology at all. It's just very, very obvious in in places. Less so than previous films, it has to be said. But this is there's a scene at this around this point where it's it's blatantly obvious and it just takes you out of the moment a little bit for me. And there's another part where you know there's tankers involved and there's there's a bit of a firefight going on and bullets ricochet off the the tanker to the sound of the James Bond tune like for a few seconds which you know we we're talking about how realistic and gritty this film is and now we're talking about some of the absurdities of Laurie's doing wheelies and and the green screen, and now now there's this musical bullets going on, and it it's somewhat amusing, but it's also very out of place. Do you think? Because if we if we um, assume they shot it in order, which obviously they don't shoot films in order, and we both said at the very top of the podcast, this doesn't feel like a James Bond film. 
do you think the director, the screenwriters were like getting near the end? They were going, oh no, it doesn't feel like a Bond film. <laughs> Let's do some like crazy bits. Let's throw some wheelies in and like James Bond tunes in with bullets, etc. Yeah, maybe there's like a quota that they've got to they've got to meet to to fulfil the uh, the James Bond qualification exam. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, unnecessary. I would say you know it's it's fine, but no, not needed in this film. I don't think. Particularly when you've got all the scenes around it. Like the next thing I want to briefly touch on is that there's a huge crash involving Bond and Sanchez, and Bond is in a real mess afterwards. And it's there's not very often that we see Bond looking so dishevelled and injured and out of sorts. You know, the the suave, sophisticated look is gone. He is a mess at this point. Final point from me before we you know, wrap things up with Jay is that Bond sets Sanchez on fire with the lighter that Felix and Della gave him after the wedding party. Another very, very dark scene for the film. It is very dark ending to Sanchez. Well deserved, but very dark. If it was me, Andy, I'd probably transport him to the local shark pool and let the shark eat him. But it, I think this is probably a more efficient way of doing things. We we get so this is the ending scene now, and Bond is seen with Lamara, and Pam witnesses them together, so they share a kiss. And Pat, you know, Andy's mentioned this a few times already. Pam is very jealous, and she she storms off, and Bond leaps off the balcony into the pool to catch her. Now I don't know why he didn't walk down the steps, and the wife. The wife was like, why did he just do that? Why didn't he just literally follow her down the steps? But also the wife commented that he wasn't impressed because Bond has kissed two Bond girls in quick succession. So usually the Bond girls are kept apart, aren't they? Whereas he's, he's kissed Lamara, Pam's witnessed that, and then Bond chases Pam, and then they, they, uh, they share a kiss as well. So we don't usually see two quick kisses. And also, I made a note here, Andy, and I don't know whether this is factually correct. It's just a thought I had. This must be one of the few times that both Bond girls are still alive at the end of the film. Because usually one or more Bond girls don't quite make it to the end, do they? No, I agree. There tend to be at least one that meets a grisly end. Um, this this is quite an interesting way to end because he, you know, it's it is some in some ways a typical Bond ending, and that Bond gets with the girl at the end, but he's got two to choose from, which is an unusual situation because normally the previous Bond girls, if even if they're not dead, they've they've been forgotten about. He's moved on, but they seem to both still be hanging around. But also, he makes his choice very blatant. He's not making any attempt to hide the fact that he's switched from Lamora to Pam. Um, just really, really bizarre. Very brazen. He is, but <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not saying this is why, but do you think he's thinking about his little black book and he's thinking, well, I've already slept with Lamara and I've not slept with Pam yet, so if I chase her down now, that's another notch on my bed and that's another Bond girl I can add to my conquest list. Quite possibly, yeah. He's, uh, he doesn't want to go back to an old mission, as it were. And Lamara is very clingy and obviously has declared her love for Bond. 
Yeah, it's a bit too much too soon, isn't it? He's not ready for that type of commitment. You know, he's, the wedding from 20 years previously is probably still stinging a little bit. Yeah, and that was obviously referenced, wasn't it, early on, which we haven't mentioned in the podcast, have we? But Della obviously mentioned something, and then Felix fills her in about Bond being married. Yeah, there, there is a reference to that, which I thought was quite a nice a nice touch, you know, keeping that continuity, because we saw more at the graveside, and now we've we've got Dalton. So so three different Bond actors all married, so we we now have that confirmation that it is a continuation of the same story. <laughs> Over to Andy to kind of go through some of the bits that we usually talk about. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Let's let's do some one-liners and quotes. So we have a bit of interaction between Bond and Q. Uh, Bond says, this is no place for you, Q. Go home. To which Q replies, oh, don't be an idiot, 007. I know exactly what you're up to, and quite frankly, you're going to need my help. Remember, if it hadn't been for Q branch, you'd have been dead long ago. I like that. I like the banter between Q and Bond. My quote is between... Well, actually, I've got two back-to-back quotes, uh, a smaller one um, to finish on. Bond and Sanchez. So, Bond, in my business, you prepare for the unexpected. And Sanchez says, and what business is that? I help people with problems. Problem solver. More of a problem eliminator, Bond goes. And then just a quick one between Bond and Q again. So, Bond says, Pam, this is Q, my uncle. Q, this is Miss Kennedy, my cousin. And then Q goes, ah, we must be related. Yeah, nice for, for Q to get the, the one-liner in here. One final quote, um, and this is from Sanchez to Bond. Should I do, should I do the accent? No, because I'll, I'll sound like a... No, cut that, I'm not going to do an accent because it's uh, probably mildly xenophobic. Uh, but he says, Signor Bond, you... <laughs> You got major cojones. No, <laughs> we're obviously going to cut that out. Get impression. It's late. chops are coming through. It's late at night, and I'm just getting a bit delirious now. <laughs> <laughs> so Sanchez says to Bond, "Senor Bond, you got big cojones. You come here to my place with our references, carrying a piece." I can't do it, I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm, I'm going... Because <laughs> it's not even his accent, he's not even that Latino. He's <laughs> like um, Manuel from Forty Towers or something. <laughs> okay, let's let's do it properly now. Uh, so, final quote, this is Sanchez de Bond. Senor Bond, you got big cojones. You come here to my place without references, carrying a piece throwing around a lot of money, but you should know something. Nobody saw you come in, so nobody has to see you go out. That's good. Andy, your, your acting chops are really coming through. Right, so let's um, let's talk about some book versus movie pointers. And I think the main thing to point out is that the main plot and title owes nothing to any of the Fleming novels, which we alluded to earlier. But there are elements from books that are used in storyline including a few aspects from the short story The Hildebrand Rarity, an example being the character Milton Crest. Yeah, in the novel Live and Let Die provided the material surrounding Felix Leiter's Mauling by a Shark, and we mentioned that in the Live and Let Die episode as well. Whilst the film version of the book provided similarities between the main villain, Mr Big, and the license to kill main villain, Sanchez. 
So Andy, I wonder what point we get to where this segment is kind of going to be go the same way as hat wearing and hat throwing where we, we're going to have to skim across, you know, skim over it because there is going to be a point where there will be, you know, no book first movie, is there? And is this the first of many? Yeah, the books have finished. I suppose technically they haven't finished, but certainly Fleming's books have finished for obvious reasons. Um, but there are other other books being made by other authors. But yeah, essentially his books have finished, but the films continue. So now have, have we moved completely away from it? I guess time will tell. Uh, but let's lighten the mood a little bit. Jay, do you want to hear one of my famous James Bond jokes? I do want to hear one of your famous James Bond jokes. Do the audience want to hear it? The audience is begging for it. So if you're still listening at this point in the podcast, settle down. You can imagine my surprise when I saw James Bond making burgers in the park. I guess he had a license to grill. Yeah, that that is good. That's a strong joke, Andy. And it's good linking it to the film title. So, nice. Are you ready? Let's start the quiz. We're now putting Andy under pressure. So he's had the limelight in terms of the joke, but now I'm kind of forcing the the spotlight on Andy now with the quiz. So let me bring the quiz up. So Andy... Andy knows the deal now, so any listen, new listeners, I'm going to s- just kind of give you a bit of a brief what this is. So this is four statements, two are correct and two are incorrect. And I'm just going to have a quick look on the tally chart, Andy, why I'm loading that up, because you've been doing pretty good lately, so I'm just going to have a quick look at the quiz checker. So last week got 100%, the week before that you got 50%, and then... I need to update the other bits. But you had a strong opening. First four episodes, you got 100% three times and then one 50%. So you you consistently do well, I think. I believe I'm correct in saying I have yet to get zero in any of the quizzes so far. That is correct, yes. And what I may have done just then is, I guess what's (laughs) known in sporting terminology as commentator's curse. (laughs) Hopefully, yes, you have cursed it. I struggle with this one, Andy. So, are you ready for the four statements? Yep, let's do this. So, first statement. In an interview during filming in 1988, Dalton denied media claims that his bond was not allowed to have as much sex due to the AIDS epidemic at the time. However, in 2007, he admitted that this was indeed true. The next statement. Robert Davy was taken by several fogs while on vacation in South America to an actual drug lord. The drug lord enjoyed his portrayal of a drug lord in License to Kill. Statement 3. This was John Glenn's least favourite film due to problems with the cast and crew while filming in Mexico City. And the last statement. Robert Davy and Timothy Dalton fell out during the filming of Licence to Kill due to Davy staying in character between scenes. Davy would verbally abuse and talk Dalton over his portrayal of Bond and compared Dalton's performance to previous Bond actors. Would you like me to repeat any of these four statements, Andy? 
No, I'm going. I'm going straight in. Straight in. Su- oh, he's, super, he's super confident. confident. And I'm going to say, first statement true, last statement true, second and third statement false. And I can elaborate if you want some more entertainment out of that, but I'm I'm really wanting to win, so that's why I've gone straight in. So you have you have not got all the all of them wrong. So you maintain your getting at least one element right. So well done on that. But you have scored 50%. Damn, overconfident. Go on, break it to me gently. So, well, would you like an opportunity to switch any of those? I'm I'm confident about the first one. So I'm going to keep that. Would that be the right thing to do? Well, you you tell me. I can't give any. My my official score is 50%, isn't it? So... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, there yeah. we go. So, so, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go w- instead of one and four, I'm gonna go one and three. Oh, no, two and four. <laughs> no, three and four. <laughs> no. One and two. Yes, <laughs> one and two. <laughs> I like the different combinations there. But yes, so the first statement and the second statement are both correct. And the third statement and the fourth statement is just made up. Yeah, I think I think the fourth statement was very clever because obviously we'd previously talked about the method acting. Uh, so you've, you've hooked me there with that bait and I've fallen for it, haven't I? I've, I've clamped on and now you've reeled me in. Yes, and also the John Glenn statement... I pulled that out from, I can't remember the director, but you know when they were filming in Egypt for the Spiral of Me? Yes. And yes. they had problems with um, food they did and other problems during filming, so I kind of linked that to this one oh, and just made okay. it said Mexico City. You've, you've recycled um, facts in the same way that <laughs> the Bond crew recycle actors. Yes, yes. But no, yeah, so, um, yep, so the the bit about the less sex because of the AIDS epidemic is true. And Robert Davy was taken by Fuggs and taken to the drug lord who said he enjoyed how Davy portrayed um, drug lords in License to Kill were both correct. Was that taken by force or just like invited to me? Because if you it's were, taken well, by force, it's that's a pretty scary ordeal to go through to just have then someone compliment you on your acting jobs. Yeah, so he was on a holiday in South America, and he was yeah, he was taken by um, several people. Yeah, that's definitely because you know what could have happened. He could have been kept prisoner. And forced to perform. Anyway, so that's the quiz. So I've updated the tracker. So that's 50%. So I'm happy with that. And he is not so happy, I'm guessing. And anything less than 100% is uh, practically zero, isn't it? <laughs> that's one way to look at it, yes. If you're not if you're not aiming for the top, what are you aiming for? There's There's a motto in life for you, ladies and gentlemen. So we're moving on to our, our rankings review. So I like well, I like all segments, Andy. 
But I, I do enjoy going for these rankings. So I'm going to kick us off with run times, kill count, and martinis. So Andy mentioned, obviously, at the top of the pod that License to Kill were 2 hours 13 minutes. And this is indeed the second longest Bond film. On Her Majesty's Secret Service remains at number one, so that dropped in at 1969 and has stayed at number one. So we are in 1989, and Majesty's Secret Service is still there. Nothing has dislodged um, any of the 70s films, any of the 80s films. It's still out there. So that's pretty impressive by George Lazenby to stay out, you know, on top. Now kill counts so we've had timothy dalton for two films and that's obviously both his film um, films wrapped now so he's not going to be adding adding any bone kills to his tally so that means he timothy dalton comes in at number three on the kill count based on average so he's had two movies he's had 23 kills over both of those movies and that's an average of 11.5 and just to recap Roger Moore is number one with 90 kills over seven movies at 12.9 kills per movie. And Sean Connery remains at number two with 72 kills over six movies for an average of 12. So a respectable 10. And in terms of the actual kill count by movie, 10 kills means License to Kill comes in at number nine, which is one above Goldfinger and one below from Russia We Love. Martini Watch is... You mentioned this at the top, Andy, and License to Kill. Dalton does have a martini as well. And from memory, Pam drinks a martini as well when she goes to the bar. She does indeed, because he's busy with Lamora and then Sanchez. Um, But let's move on. Bond, James Bond. Introduction comes at 1 hour, 8 minutes, 49 seconds. The second longest of any film that we've seen it in so far. And very different from last week's episode where we talked about The Living Daylights. And that was at 7 minutes 24 seconds, so one of the earlier ones. So we're at two ends of the spectrum for Dalton. Very early in the film and very late in the film. Hat Watch, we, we've got a bit of a series going on now where the hats seem to be gone. Second week in a row, we've got no hat wearing, no hat throwing. Let's see if that continues in future episodes. Felix Leiter is back and as we mentioned earlier in the pod it's the first time a actor has played the role for multiple occasions so this is the second appearance for david hedison and the seventh overall appearance for felix leiter as a character with six different actors so far but david hedison is the first repeat and finally just recap what we talked about earlier from a box office perspective so license to kill uh, with the highest budget so far at 42 million. Actual box office was 156 million dollars, which adjusted for inflation is just under 366 million dollars, which you know puts it from an adjusted box office perspective bottom of the pile. But it's still a very respectable actual total. Um, although quite significantly down on what the living daylights brought in so you know 35 million less in real terms and 120 million less in adjusted terms so a a drop in performance for dalton here from his previous film which is interesting considering our scores andy and 
our comments throughout the podcast, but like we said at the beginning, due to movie ratings, competitions, issues um, as well, there it's you know that's all played a part. So moving on, Bond girls. We've only got two um, two Bond girls in License to Kill, and and I'm just going to straight away. Pam goes in at twenty. Lupe goes in at twenty-one. There wasn't much I could really distinguish between them both, and I couldn't really move them up any further because of looking at the one, you know, Bond girls above Pam. I've got people like Fiona, Stacy Sutton, Kissy, Aki, Sylvia Trench. So I struggled to move them any higher. But then when I worked up from the bottom, like I said before, sometimes I work from the top, sometimes I work from the bottom. I got all the way up to Kara from The Living Daylights, and I thought, yeah, they're both better than Kara. But then I got to Magda in Octopussy, and I thought, oh, no, Magda's, you know, useful. You know, she she, she pulls out some moves. So that's why I slotted um, both of them. And Pam, even though she was jealous, if I wanted one of those Bond girls with me, I would probably pick Pam because she could probably look after me, Andy, compared to Lupe. I think, you know, if I get in any bar fights, I can just rely on Pam to to sort things out, I think. So that's why I put Pam um, in one place above Lupe. But out of the 57 Bond girls we've had so far, so that's pretty just just above mid-table. So I think that's respectable. What about you, Andy? Where have you put Pam and Lupe? So it's interesting that you mentioned Magda as a bit of a benchmark of sorts because I've got Magda in as 17 and I've slotted Lupe in just below her at 18. Similar kind of reasons. They're very very much on a par with the character. Um, nothing much to add really from from what you've said. You know, Lupe is, is a fairly strong Bond girl but things like her confessing her undying love after one night with Bond is a, a little bit weak. So, you know, she probably knocks down a couple of places for that. Uh, for Pam, I've gone, I've been slightly more generous. I've put her in at 13. And for me, the the benchmark for Pam was Stacey Sutton from A View to a Kill. I thought they were very similar type characters on a par with each other, but just slight edge for Stacey. So Stacey is in at 12, so Pam goes in at 13. So slightly higher up than what, what you've got them in as, but still respectable top half of the table for both ladies yeah and just for our listeners obviously you know we're talking about the bond girls that we've just seen this week in the the films that we watch so just to recap and obviously you can look at our website because we've got the full list so and i'm just going to recap on my top five and if you want to do the same as well because to be fair looking at that andy no one there's been a few films before they even got in the top five so for me Tracy is number one, Pussy Galore is number two, Tatiana is number three, Anya is number four, and Melina is number five. So looking at the quickly at the five, the For Your Eyes Only is the latest film where I've had any movement in the top five, Andy. What about you? My top five has remained this way for probably slightly longer. So I've got Tatiana in at number one, Pussy Galore at two, Anya Amasova at three, 
Tracy at four and then Solitaire at five. So my most recent top five entry would have been Anya from The Spy Who Loved Me. So that's going back to 1977. So it's been 12 years. I mean, it's been a few weeks in podcast terms, but 12 years in terms of Bond girls before anyone's managed to penetrate that top five. But let's talk about theme songs next and see if the songs made the top five for either of us here. And for me, it's not. Number six, I've got License to Kill by Gladys Knight. So just below Diamonds Are Forever and just above For Your Eyes Only. Very similar songs, kind of... Um, what would the how would I describe that? Again, I'm not musical, but it's sort sort of ballad esque, big you know, bit of a big band song, quite quite traditional, I would say. You know, I would compare it with the likes of Shirley Bassey um, and Sheena Easton. So it's a respectable entry in at number six for me. How did this fare for you? I agree, Andy. It's definitely back to the kind of earlier bonds where we've. I say we've, I'm kind of like talking that we're part of the production crew, but they've had AHA, Duran Duran, kind of like 80 bands, haven't they, um, recently. And this is definitely feels like they're going back to the earlier franchise type of song. So Gladys Knight did break my top five. And again, this is very much, Andy, I've said it before, you know, when I can't quite place a song, I then listened to them, say, on like YouTube or, or something like Spotify. And I was doing the same between For Your Eyes Only and License to Kill. So we're listening back to back. And for me, For Your Eyes Only, just great tip, Sheena Easton. So License to Kill, respectable, five, you know, out of the 16 we've seen so far, you know, top five is, is very good. Uh, interesting you mentioned the Spotify list. I was actually with my dad earlier and... I had, I had the the Bond playlist on in the car, and uh, he was like, "Oh, where did you get this music from?" So then I said, "Oh, it's on Spotify," and he gave me that look. What Spotify? I said, "Oh, it's you know a streaming service," and he just went, "Nope, none the wiser." <laughs> um, and at this point, I wish I'd had some sharks around me so that I could feed him to them because he was really frustrating <laughs> with his questions. But I digress. Let's move on, shall we? No, that's interesting, Andy, and. You know, it's nice that we're we're talking about a podcast with people that we know. And James Bond is such a, a famous franchise that, you know, your dad, you know, is a big fan of James Bond. People I work with aren't necessarily big fans, but they enjoy the, the films, enjoy the music. So it's a film that, you know, because it's been going since the 60s, it's just, it's gone over generations, hasn't it? So talking to people, parents and grandparents and colleagues and stuff everyone kind of has a some kind of experience of watching a bond apart from your wife obviously indeed she's she's missing out so i'm going to cover the opening credits and for me i str- i didn't struggle in terms of where to place it but like you said andy on countless podcasts they, they they're quite samey so for me i thought it was very similar to the living daylights but I ranked it just below. So, respectable seventh, which is just above halfway in mid-table. So, I think that's respectable. What about you, Andy? Where have you ranked um, License to Kill? Because from memory, the last few films haven't been scored as highly, have they, on your list? Generally, no. I think there's been a few exceptions. And this is an exception, actually, because this cracks the top five. 
I liken this to A View to a Kill, which is now at number six. I think you're right in terms of a lot of elements do seem samey, but I think there was an, there was enough nuance in this just to give it a little bit more originality. Things like the camera lenses and casino tables and chips and stuff is just slightly different variation of what we've seen so far. So, you know, they've not reinvented it by any means, but they've added some level of originality and I quite enjoyed it. So top five for me. Moving on, let's talk villains. So like Bond Girls list, we have a pretty hefty list to go through. We've got 49 villains on the pile now. I'm going to start towards the bottom end of the list. In fact, all the way down at 46, where I've got Colonel Heller. Bit of a, a non-entity for me, which is why he's so far down the list. I just don't... Nothing really memorable. Nothing really stands out as, as being particularly menacing or villainous. Almost an unnecessary character, I would have to say, from my side. So all the way down in 46. We jump up slightly, up to 37, with Milton Crest. Not the strongest character, not the main henchman, not no, sorry, not the main villain. Bit of a, bit of a sideshow, a bit, a bit smarmy, not really threatening in any way. Um, a character that was sort of fine, and and for the purposes of benchmarking, I went to Emil Leopold Locke as the as the benchmark, and I came in just slightly below in thirty-seven. So you know. Towards the bottom, okay. We jump up quite a bit, though, from there, and all the way up to 17 with Dario. I thought, as a number two henchman, as Dario was positioned, thought there was enough intimidation, enough violence, um, to, to really... I thought it was a really solid job by Benicio Del Toro, a very, very well-played role, uh, very intimidating, and a, and a good challenge for bond um so i've i've rated quite highly it's, it's it's difficult to put him any higher than that because there's very little in terms of speaking part or having an impact of his own he's you know he's an order taker he's a henchman he's a sidekick but but a good sidekick so all up at 17 uh, which leaves franz sanchez played by robert davy and i really enjoyed his portrayal and he goes in at number 10 so in the top 10 is uh, a very worthy F out. I'm just going to remind myself of my own top 10. And I think this is the first appearance in a top 10 for quite some time. Other than May Day in A View to a Kill, the top 10 has been fairly static for quite some time. Uh, what about you, Jay? Where, where have you ranked the, the four villains in this piece? I agree. Colonel Heller didn't really do much. Doesn't really add a lot to the um, the storyline but I put him in slightly higher than you Andy with 41 and so for me I was looking at the people below him and I've got like Bambi, Fumper, Octopussy, Magda, Helga and I think yeah yeah he, he's more even if I might not necessarily enjoy him as a character I think he's more menacing than those ones I've just listed or competent even in terms of like Helga and Mr. Asata. So number four, you know, 41st. So, uh, you know, bottom, near the bottom, like what you've done. Interestingly, we've both got Milton Crest at number 37, and I agree with your points totally. So 
I'm just going to move on. Dario, I've got Dario in 23rd. And I agree with all your points, Andy. And you just mentioned about kind of like time on the screen. And that's the reason why he didn't go any higher. Because when I look at the people above Dario, so I placed Dario below Kamal, Prince Kamal Khan, the Baron from Live and Let Die, Teehee, then Scaramanga, Mr. Big, Zorin. I could, because he wasn't in the, he's definitely from a character point of view, he's more ruthless, scarier, you know, you wouldn't really want to be going against Dario. Vicious, but he's not in it as much as those other characters, I think, and that's why I've just put him lower down. I think he's a really good henchman, but I think in terms of screen time, especially with Prince Kamal Khan, he, he's in Octopussy a lot, and you know he's going against Bond, so I, I do like him. So that's why I couldn't really put him above Khan. And Sanchez, you've got him at 10, and Sanchez did break into my top 10, so I've got him in number 8. And, you know, that is the first time that my top 10 has been broken into since The Spy Who Loved Me, which was Jaws in fourth place. So that was an interesting observation that you picked up, Andy, about the top 10 not really much changing on your side and on my side as well. And I suppose it's similar to the Bond Girls, really, isn't it, where there's been not much movement on at the top of the table. Moving on, so we're going to talk about the the movies now. On my list, so, you know, we, you know I've said this before, films can have the same score, but we're explicitly putting them in a in a certain order so there's no joint positions license to kill is seven out of ten and for me it goes in a eighth position out of 16 so that's smack in the middle of the table so far and i've got what's that one two three four five films seven out of ten and i I couldn't move it any higher, Andy, if I'm honest. So the, the other films I've got 7 out of 10 is Doctor No in ascending order. Doctor No, Thunderball, For Your Eyes Only, and The Spy Who Loved Me. So I I think it's very respectable position. And it's the highest scoring film for a while, but it didn't break into the top five it didn't move any higher than the the bottom of the seven out of ten mark so it's it's an enjoyable film but i couldn't do it any higher than that so also a seven out of ten for me but i've gone slightly higher this is another thing that's cracked the top five so number five for me just above honor majesty's secret service just below for your eyes only both of which had seven out of ten along with A View to a Kill in 3rd place, Spy Love Me in 7th, and From Russia With Love in 8th. I really enjoyed it, and uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, it's, as a standalone film, I think it's very, very strong effort. And the, the similarities in places between Dalton's portrayal in this film and Lazenby's portrayal were, were quite evident at times. And that's what naturally lent me to think they were a very similar in terms of quality, so when I was working through the rankings to position it, that was kind of naturally where it fell. But it wasn't quite as strong as For Your Eyes Only and A View to a Kill, a View to a Kill especially, which was a very very strong ending for 
for Roger Moore. But still top five, very respectable, solid effort, and really good film. And before we move over, we, we've started to kind of capture this slightly dis- different as well. We get, you can check the our website um, for this as well. So what we've started to do is now we've finished another decade. So we finished the 80s. We've just kind of quickly highlighted the best film from each of the decades we've had so far. So if I just do mine quickly, Andy. So in my, so we've had the 60s, 70s and 80s so far. So the best film in the 60s and my list is Goldfinger with 9 out of 10. The best film from the 70s is The Spy Who Loved Me with 7 out of 10. And the best film of the 80s is For Your Eyes Only with 7 out of 10. So they are my top three films in terms of decades. What about you, Andy? So Goldfinger, 9 out of 10 in the 60s. It stands high, high above the rest. Live and Let Die with 8 out of 10 was my Bond film of the 70s. And then A View to a Kill with 7 out of 10 was my best Bond film of the 80s. And interestingly, they are also my top three overall. So I I don't particularly, you know, I don't show any favoritism towards one era by age. Let's look at them in a different way as well. Let's go by actor. So now Dalton's tenure has come to an end with the two films, The Living Daylights and License to Kill. For me, very clear, License to Kill was the stronger film, so it's an easy, an easy ranking at number one for Dalton. Living Daylights was two marks below with five out of ten. So I average out six out of ten for for Dalton. What about you, Jay? Where does this rank for you? Yeah, number one in terms of Timothy, Timothy Dalton. So obviously, like you said, he's just done two films. And... My difference is obviously slightly, well, is only one difference really between the two films. So Living Daylights is 6 out of 10 and Licence to Kill is 7. So therefore, the average of Dalton is 6.5 out of 10 compared to Andy's 6 out of 10. So I think that's a respectable average really. Yeah, and I guess the question is, which we're going to touch on in a minute, is whether the films actually line up to the performance of the Bond actor is it you know you you mentioned that your marks say that you enjoy the Dalton films more than the Moore films I've got the Moore films slightly ahead of the Dalton films so is that reflected in our Bond and actor rankings let's find out shall we yeah and interestingly Andy I've actually changed my order so up until last week I had Connery Moore Lazenby and then Dalton, but having watched Licence to Kill, I've moved Dalton in my table now of Bond actors, so he's moved up one position, and I felt a bit, I was being a bit harsh to Lazenby, but Lazenby, he only had one film, and, you know, in terms of films, in terms of my top ten, on a Majesty's Secret Service is number two on my list, eight out of ten. You know, so only Goldfinger's doing better, only Sean Connery's doing better in terms of a film. But like you've said before, Andy, you can have a a bad Bond in a good film, and vice versa. And I couldn't justify putting Dalton higher than Moore, because even though, on averages, I've just mentioned Dalton has scored higher. 
Roger Moore has had, you know, seven films and I feel it would be a bit harsh on me to put Dalton above Moore on the basis of just two films, considering the Living Daylights was a six out of ten and, you know, the last film that we watched, you know, Licence to Kill is seven out of ten. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't move it any higher. And I wonder whether Lazenby had two films, whether my order would be different again. But I'd, I couldn't warrant putting Dalton any higher just on the basis that he, he's only done two films, even though we've obviously both enjoyed this film. So I don't know what your view is on your list. Has your list changed now we've wrapped up Timothy Dalton or has it remained the same? So my list has also changed, but in reverse to what how you described it. So I originally had Dalton ahead of Lazenby. And having watched the films back, I've now got Dalton below Lazenby in my Bond actor list. We've waxed lyrical about License to Kill. It's a very strong film. But I think the one thing that lets it down and stops it from being an 8 or a 9 is Dalton's portrayal of Bond. And that's not to say that Dalton didn't act the part well or is a bad actor. But across the two films, I never got a sense of what his character was as Bond because it flittered too many different ways. Like with Lazenby, although it was a very different portrayal to Connery, it was quite clear what Lazenby was all about, even in that one film. And I think with with time, he could have been a very, very strong Bond if he'd continued in that direction. Dalton was emotional, but also very cold. He was very tender and loving with some of the Bond girls, but then also very chauvinistic and almost to the point of abusive and there was he never really found common ground and it flittered from from one extreme to the other so I, I never really got a sense of what bond his bond vision was if that makes sense and that to me let it down slightly and when we talked earlier about this didn't feel really feel like a bond film it, it's because it didn't feel like Bond was in the film, or a typical Bond portrayal was in the film. So, as much as the film was very good, and Dalton was very good in it in his role, I didn't feel like he was particularly strong in the role of Bond. If that makes sense, he was a he was a good protagonist. He was a he was a good good guy. But he didn't really feel like he was Bond. It's it's interesting, Annie, because when you were saying that, it reminded me of some of the comments that you had in the Living Daylights, where, you know, we've we made some notes. We obviously spoke about it as well, where sometimes his portrayal was inconsistent in terms of um, Bond was either being nice or dark. But although I do think in License to Kill, he, he's just consistently <laughs> dark, whereas the Living Daylights. Because I, I do think Living Daylights um, lets him lets the Dalton down a bit, so it's interesting that we've done the the flip because I I you know I've discussed I like Jaws Lazenby and you know we've discussed in that episode it's a shame he didn't have more films, 
But on the basis of license to kill, because I do like Bosnan, I would have loved to have the the third film that never was. You know, just like you know the kind of like a trilogy. Then that would have been, um, and especially if they kept it to the the grittier side, because I've, you know we mentioned this in last week's episode where the living daylights kind of had some remnants of kind of like the more version of Bond whereas this is just consistently the Dalton version the the gritty darker side of things yeah I, w- I would agree with that I think Living Daylights has certainly let him down in terms of the overall portrayal but I still feel like there were there weren't enough consistent elements in this to to really get a true handle of his character there were still elements where he behaved in a way different to the rest of the film so, yeah. It, and certainly, it was never going to challenge Connery or more. But I think Lazenby has the edge for me now, having rewatched. And I'm quite surprised by that because I, I thought my my predetermined list would remain intact. But I've got to got to be honest to what I'm seeing these days. And yeah, and ditto because obviously my pre predetermined list. Um, is different to what is being shown at the moment due to the change that I've just made. So it's it's interesting. And like you said, maybe the Dalton portrayal of Bond would would have made us move him higher if this did feel like a Bond film, like you said, and not a um, just a, a normal action slash spy movie of someone going rogue because the elements of Bond you know, like you said earlier, it doesn't feel like a Bond. If it was like a, if the Bond, if it did feel like a, a true Bond film, maybe your rating might have been higher. It, well, your ranking of the Bond actors may be higher because it felt like he was portraying Bond and not necessarily, I don't know, a generic spy or something. I think that's that's fair to say, but an interesting exercise. The third, the third film that never was, could have been the decider. But I guess we'll never know. Yeah, indeed. For anything we want to say before we wrap up, um, I think the the last thing to say is obviously we've talked about what's going on behind the scenes. This this franchise is a bit out of luck with the legal disputes and the 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 delay in production. What what this franchise really needs is the look of the Irish, and as if by magic, that's exactly what they're going to get because a certain Irishman by the name of Pierce Brosnan is going to enter. The Fray, in next week's episode, which is Goldeneye, which of course sung by Tina Turner. So is this film going to be simply the best? Two jokes for the price of one there. Let's call it a day because it's late. Thanks for listening, everyone. Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out this on the system, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room. Mm-hmm.